It's September 1981. In this episode, we have part one of my Atari 8-bit flight simulator roundup with mini-game reviews of five civilian flight simulators with Chris Olson, a commercial airline pilot who grew up with Ataris. For magazine stuff, I'm starting coverage of Byte magazine because they begin to serialize the important book Dairy Atari over the course of ten issues. Also in this episode, we have a listener-written program, talk about the upcoming Atari party, and I put Star Raiders on hold in the tech section as a new topic has jumped into view. This is the Player Missile Podcast. I'm Rob McMullen, and we're ready for episode 12. Hi, welcome back to the Player Missile Podcast. As I record this, it's a couple days before the Atari party, and I'm excited about driving up there and hanging out with a bunch of Atari people, so it should be fun. It's doubtful I'll be able to get this edited and out there before the Atari party, but I suppose there's always a chance. So hopefully I saw everybody up there. I just finished setting up all the Raspberry Pis that I'm going to bring. I'm going to bring a couple, and I put the RetroPie distribution on there, which is a way to run a bunch of emulators. So I'm going to have... Um, the Atari 2600 emulator Stella, and the Atari 800 emulator called Atari 800. I may have MAME going. I can't figure out which games to bring on MAME, and a lot of the MAME games need more controls. And I just built a little uh, little controller box that just has a single joystick and, and a single button because uh, my Epix 500XJ joystick finally just is just not working going left. I just can't go left, which is a little important on some games. And a listener, Rex Allison, several episodes ago, sent some feedback in that he had built these little main machines built made out of Raspberry Pi, and so I kind of took that as a little inspiration, and so I built a little bit of a little hardware instead of trying to buy like a you know a USB gamepad or something. I've got a little setup going. So hopefully everybody saw it at the Atari party. Hopefully it's complete. <laughs> it's not actually quite complete as I record this, so I'm assuming I get it completed. Before I get into the feedback, I did want to mention the, there's an Atari podcast interview thread going on on Atari Age, and Again, I've mentioned this several times. The Antic guys are really just knocking it out of the park with all the interviews they're doing. Most recently, Randy sat down with David Fox and did an interview all about uh, his experience coding up Rescue on Fractalis. And last episode, I gave a spoiler about the surprise scare that shows up there. I didn't think it was any big deal because, you know, 30-year-old game, whatever. But, you know, there's some people listening to this podcast that maybe have not played the games. So in the future, I will refrain from spoilers and... In that interview with David Fox, he goes into quite de- quite a lot of detail about that spoiler, so I don't feel quite so bad. <laughs> Kevin Savitz, actually, kind of... Yeah, let's just say that I will endeavor not to release any spoilers of uh, games that I cover from now on. But yeah, Kevin was just kidding, he's, he's poking fun at me. I, I want to say that, despite my <laughs> revealing of a spoiler, Kevin was very generous. Yeah, he had a bunch of duplicate Atari books, and so he sent me some. So, uh, Kevin, I really appreciate it. Uh, there's a couple on the Atari machine language that I hope to put to use in, you know, the technical st- segments of this podcast. There's a really, really interesting one on Atari copy protection. It's a whole, like, treatise on how you can protect not only disks, but cartridges. Um, really interesting. And had I had this back when I was doing, you know, my little, you know, my attempts at cracking stuff, I, it, there were definitely some techniques that I had not heard of. And he goes into detail about how protection um, 
schemes are actually applied to the disks, which is also helpful when you're trying to break stuff. So thanks again, Kevin. And I'm looking forward to meeting Kevin and some other po- the podcasters at uh, Kansas Fest, which is coming up in July. Let's get into a little feedback. I got an email from Carol Launanen from Finland. So hopefully I didn't mess up your name too bad, Carl. Thanks so much for your Player Muscle podcast. I just discovered it via Antic, and I've been listening to it from the beginning. Very nice concept going through the history chronologically. And I also love the interviews a lot. Recently you were wondering how technical you should go with a podcast. And I personally appreciate going as technical as possible. Uh, yeah, me too. I do like the technical bits. So, glad you like those. He goes on and says, I've been recently studying the 800XL and trying to develop a little game for it for uh, my four-year-old son to play, as commercial games are too difficult for him. The 800XL was the first home computer in our family back in 84-85, uh, and a year or two back I started wondering about what kind of machine it actually was. In the early episodes, you were investigating display lists and other implementation details, and I really enjoyed those. You've been doing excellent work, and I hope you keep uh, doing the podcast. Thanks once more. Yeah, thanks, Carl. I do, in fact, this episode, there'll be some more info on display lists coming out as we cover Byte Magazine which starts to do a serialization of Dere Atari. I think as I back, get back into more like in-depth game reviews, I'm going to start kind of poking around into the sort of details of what that particular game might be using. I've been doing... Most of the recent episodes have been interview episodes, and I've not done game reviews, but I think I will get back into the game reviews, certainly as we turn into 1982, and then a lot of, a lot of really fun games that I've been looking forward to covering are, um, are available. In the email exchange I had with Caro, he sent a picture of some a maze game that he was developing, and he's got like an automatic, automated maze generator, so it looks pretty cool. So I'm looking forward to seeing that, because I, you know, I have small kids, and it'd be fun to get, you know, sort of kid-oriented games, and that's kind of one of the things I've been thinking about for, um, you know, the main cabinet that I'm attempting to build very slowly. Which kind of leads into the next email I got from Perry Thuente who said, um, I'll start by saying that I really enjoy listening to your podcast. I hope you can keep doing it for a long time to come. I heard a few episodes ago that you were thinking of hacking Pac-Man to be more kid-friendly, and it would help if you had the source code. And I want to suggest that you try to contact the person who wrote the Pac-Man dossier, and there's a chance he did some documentation of the code. Back when I was working on an update of 7800 Donkey Kong, I found some blog posts from a person who did an analysis of that arcade game logic. And he sent me a link to the Pac-Man dossier, which I'll include in the show notes. And so I did end up actually getting in contact with a couple people who had disassembled uh, Ms. Pac-Man. Apparently the Pac-Man source code, Namco, is a little bit more restrictive about what they allow on the on the web. And so, uh, But I'll, I'll talk about this a little bit more in the main section of the podcast. On Twitter, Jim Fullerton sent out a tweet, said, Thanks to Atari Podcast and Atari 8-Bit Games, I pulled the trigger on, on an 800XL on 1050 drive, the setup I had back in the day. Well, that's awesome. Glad you're getting back into the hardware. At some point, I will get my own hardware going. Some other nice tweets from you know, Sean Hawley, 8-Bit Rocket, CGO Apps, Bill, Bill Kendrick. And uh, Sean Hawley said, The monotone computer lady is getting a bit cheeky. <laughs> I cannot find my cheeks. And again, talking about Bill, I'm excited about going to the Atari party here in a couple days. Of course, by the time you hear this, it'll probably be after the Atari party, but we'll see. Maybe I can get this going super fast. In the new listener-written program section... Got a tweet from Edwardian Duck, who sent me a link to um, a Sudoku solver that he wrote in 6502 Assembly. So I'll include a link to that in the in the show notes. It's really cool. He's got a nice write-up of it, and 
Stoker, it's like a, it's a constraint game, you know, so there's only, there's ways to sort of use logic and the, all the rules to figure out what all the numbers are going to be. And it's cool. He's got, a, yeah, like I said, he's got a nice write-up of it in the, on the webpage. And then, and there's a, there's a nice Easter egg in the, in the webpage write-up where he's got the names of all three of the Atari podcasts in the text of the webpage. So that was a cool little tribute. So thanks a lot. If you've got other programs you'd like me to feature, I'm happy to talk about them in the podcast. Yeah. So just send me a link with a, a webpage that has a write-up. Just like this is a great example of one, and I'd be happy to feature it on the podcast. The MAME section is back. Well, slightly. Not, I haven't really made a lot of progress on the cabinet, although I did make up a little uh, arcade controls box for the Atari party. And again, I'm so, <laughs> so we're talking about past tense of stuff that it's not quite completed yet, so it's kind of odd. But I'm assuming I actually will get it done for the Atari party. I guess we'll see. But yeah, going back to the email that Perry Thwente sent about talking to the guys who had disassembled Pac-Man, I got in touch with a guy named Bart Grantham who had a disassembly of Miss Pac-Man. And another guy, Sean Williams, re-implemented sort of Pac-Man, Miss Pac-Man, and a, a really cool variation called Cookie Man, which is based on the Cookie Monster. I'll include links to all this stuff in the show notes. So yeah, my idea was to sort of make it easier... You know, easier to play by either reducing the number of ghosts or something, and talking with all these guys that they're, and looking through the source code, it may actually be easier just to keep all the ghosts in the pen. So they, there's a couple little spots in the source code that detail like timers when the ghosts are released from the pen. So maybe that it's easy to modify that. And um, Perry also suggested that there's some speed controls. Looks like there's a bit field that controls when each frame, uh, you know, during each frame, a ghost can move. So if there's a zero in a bit pattern, that means the ghost doesn't move that frame. If there's a one, it means the ghost does. So maybe turning most of those to zeros, the ghost will move really slowly. And then even if all four ghosts are going around, it still might be easier to for a kid to control it. So I mentioned there's a couple instances of the Miss Pac-Man commented disassembly being available. But apparently Namco is still protective of the Pac-Man source code. Now, there's the whole story about Miss Pac-Man versus Pac-Man that I talked about in the Jawbreaker episode, where a company called GCC reverse-engineered Pac-Man and then sold this as a kit to Midway, which then used that as the basis for Miss Pac-Man. And the the Midway-Namco split was contentious. I guess it might even still be contentious. Well, I guess if Midway were still around, which I guess they aren't. But there's a article on uh, gamedev.net about a, a DCMA takedown order of a disassembly of Namco's Pac-Man source. Um, not the Defense Contract Management Agency. He always gets that acronym wrong. It's DMCA, the Digital Millennium Copyright Abomination. And why they haven't gone after the Miss Pac-Man sources, I'm thankful for. But I guess, you know, Namco and Midway are, yeah, again, we're different entities. So anyway, there's a whole bunch of links in the show notes about Pac-Man and disassembly and Z80. I still don't know Z80, so that, that does put a damper on actually hacking the code. But actually, reading some of the disassemblies, there's one of the versions has a sort of a, a text description of every single machine language code. The dis- disassembler must do this automatically, and so it's. I've been reading that a little bit, and kind of it's it's not as different from 6502 as I thought it might be. I'm starting to be able to read Z80 assembly a little bit. So anyway, we'll see how far this goes. But I, I thank all the guys who um, 
I were able I was able to talk to about this. So yeah, thanks to Perry Thwante, Bart Grantham, and Sean Williams. And again, check out Cookie Man by Sean Williams. His re-implementation of uh, Pac-Man and JavaScript is very fun. Here's a teeny little tech section this time. So I haven't made any progress in Star Raiders, and actually I think I'm going to put Star Raiders on a hold temporarily because a new idea has sort of jumped into the forefront of my mind here. Talking with Kevin Savitz, we're both Jump Band fans, fanatics maybe, super fanatics, I don't know. Jumpman is an excellent game. Oh, and uh, Rob O'Hara is about to cover Jumpman on his, the next episode of um, Sprite Castle. So I'm kind of looking forward to seeing how the Commodore 64 version is different, if at all. Yeah, I've never, I've still never played with a Commodore 64, never played any games, never done so much as tap a key. You know, I've listened to his podcast for a while and I've seen videos on YouTube and whatever. And so I've seen some of the games, but never actually played them. But anyway, Kevin and I were talking about Jumpman and kind of got the bug is like, maybe we can hack with it a little bit. It'd be fun to hack it so you could start at whatever level you wanted to, so you could practice that level. And because there's still some levels I've never seen way at the at the higher ends, you know, in the twenties. I've not I have not solved the game. I think Kevin may have actually solved all the levels. So that may be my new project: is a little bit of disassembly of disassembly of the Jumpman source. And um, I thought it was an, available as an exe or xex, but it's only an ATR image. So that means it's only a disk image. So it loads it loads. And now as I think about it, I do remember that it loads the levels as you get to the next one, so you can hear some disk access going. So that may actually be a little bit easier, because we should be able to intercept the disk loading call to see where that's called, and then sort of from there kind of back out where the level, where each level is stored, and then how you call a specific level. So I guess now I'm on the lookout for a 6502 disassembler, and I should look into... Um, Woodson does that Woodson have a disassembler? I think it was a Windows disassembler. Oh, oh yeah, it's a disk six five oh two. I think I think it's Windows only. So I may have to look at that and fire up VirtualBox or something and get Windows running. See, so yeah, I'm gonna gonna set Star Raiders to the side for a little bit. I'm not gonna forget about it for sure, but uh, I think Jumpman may take my attention. Oh, there's another little tech bit. Steve Hales, the author of Ford Apocalypse, among others, has released the source code to Ford Apocalypse. It's on GitHub. And I forked it and looked at it, and it's... I haven't tried building it, It's but it's smaller than I thought. Well, you know, I guess, again, I guess we're talking about, you know, 8-bit games that probably fit into that. Was this a 16K game? But yeah, I'd, I'd read a few things. I didn't see a bunch of comments yet, so I'd, I didn't really poke into the code that much. But, um, yeah, speaking of no comments, I found some of my old source code. I have a little game that I wrote. It's kind of sabotage-based. So this is something I wrote back in when I was, I don't know, 15 or 16, whatever it was. So I found that, so I'm going to try to put it up on GitHub, and I have zero comments in any of my source code files. I mean, none. I don't know. I'm, I obviously just kept it all in my head, but still, I think I would have written down a comment. And I looked through, I thought it was because I found a, a Mac 65 detokenizer, which I'll include in the show notes. I'd written it in Mac 65. And I thought, oh, maybe this thing just didn't handle comments, but nope, it's, uh, I looked through the hex dump and no comments anywhere, so I was not a commenter. That's still one of my problems today, is I've, I tend to write stuff and just try to blast it out, because it's, you know, fresh in my mind, I want to get it done, but even looking back on stuff, you know, weeks or even months old is just ridiculous, so I 
You'd think I would learn this lesson, but I have not. And I guess it started at an early age. It starts the magazines. Again, I'm trying my new way of, of looking through the magazines. I've, I've gone through and I've annotated the PDFs. And I'm kind of looking at them right here as I'm, as I'm talking. So the first one is uh, Analog 400-800 magazine. Analog number four, which is listed in archive.org as a September issue. On the cover, there's a guy in a spacesuit with an Atari joystick and looking at Star Raiders on a screen. And it says Space Games Reviewed. There's an ad for the, some, some compute books. In the editorial, Mike DeShane talks about the um, subscription and uh, says, You won't see Analog expanding its pages to cover other systems or adding more advertisers without adding more pages to offset the difference. As you may have noticed, we've enlarged our publication two times, and this is only our fourth issue. And I'll admit that we've been late with every issue so far, but the contents of our, and in parentheses your, magazine are more important to us than the time of mailing. And, you know, as they go to get further along, they'll get more on track, schedule-wise. But uh, he goes on and says, it will be easier, it would be a lot easier to publish a computer magazine that covers a wide range of systems. But we want to cover the, what we feel is the best system. And I agree. And he has a note about pirating. And um, says we'll, they'll have more a bigger article about pirating in the next issue. But it says, uh, I would just like to mention that Analog is doing its part in trying to prevent this widespread widespread hobby. It seems that the pirating of Atari software is surpassing every other system. He goes on and says, I know many exciting programs that are sitting on shelves delayed for release because of the amount of pirating in the Atari circle. And everybody listening probably already knows what my theme is for the podcast, is that yes, pirating killed the Atari market. So, In the Atari news section, they talk about the light pen... And I actually built one of these, and I saw that, that Bill Kendrick on Twitter the other day had a light pen going. So maybe he'll have that at the Atari party. I'll report back. There's an article about basic disk utilities by Jerry White. And he's talking about that you can access some of the DOS routines from basic using some um, some basic commands. There's a command called XIO, which sort of accesses some of the, the low-level disk routines. There's a basic game called Darts. It doesn't have a screenshot, and I didn't actually look at it. There's a Morse code practice program, so you can output Morse code sounds. And it looks like you can receive, it'll play stuff and you can uh, try to type in what it says too, so you can practice both both ways of Morse sending. There's an article called The Game Room by Tom Repstad, who talks about some of the Adventure International text-based games. Ooh, there's an ad for Jawbreaker, we covered that. There's a program called Program Condenser, which does some conversion of data statements to different bases in order to save space, like talking about reducing like strings from, if you're only using uppercase instead of using a full ASCII, you reduce it to so you use 5 bits instead of 8 to store stuff. Got some game reviews, Sands of Mars, Starbase, Hyperion, Starship Duel, Lunar Lander by Adventure International, which I, wish, I actually should probably try to play, because I'm not sure if it's one of the rotating kinds or if it's a left-right thrust kind. Conflict 2500, this is a tactical simulation game. Rescue at Rigel. Galactic Quest. Oh, and then Asteroids. Asteroids by Atari. There's a there's kind of an unflattering quote. It says, I must start out by saying the computer version of this game is a big letdown. I don't know who at Atari wrote it, but they should have seen the computer version of Missile Command to learn more of the Atari capabilities. I think it actually may have been Todd Fry who wrote this for the 800. Yep, that's correct. But yeah, it's not that much different than the 2600, if I remember correctly. The reviewer says, the saving grace of this game is that it's addictive. 
And at the very least, you'll improve your peripheral vision. <laughs> I think Missile Command for the 800 just is inside. I think it was wrote by Rob, written by Rob Zadibble. Yep, also correct. He is 242. And Missile Command will definitely be the one of the games I review before 1981 is out. There's a review of Atari Conversational Spanish. And Wade's going to cover one of these at Inverse Tasky, I think. Is he going to do French? I can't remember. Three, four, three. Maybe I'll start taking investment advice. That was a joke. Haha, <laughs> fat chance. It's a game called Comp 3, which is a break-the-code game similar to Mastermind, it says. It's in basic. There's a little article called Rumors. It says the A10 disk drives are going to have a new Model C ROM that allows for faster formatting. It talks about Maybe releasing OSB. So maybe OSA was still out there and OSB hadn't been released yet. Oh, this is end of 81. Hmm. Talks a little bit about the 815 disk drive that was never really released. That was Neo Dual Disk Dual Density. And it says there's rumors of quad density, which I don't ever really think came to Atari. There's still a VCS update article. I'm not sure how long this lasts, but I know it doesn't last till... I started reading, reading about episode or um, issue 11. I don't think it lasts that long. Here's a software review of the CCA Data Management System by CE Software. I don't know if this is on Wade's radar. It's, um, what do you mean by data management system? Looks like a database, essentially. There's the Assembler Editor Non-Tutorial Part 3 by Charles Bashand. This one's talking about how do you include other files and sort of compartmentalizing code to keep it, you know, manageable pieces. And near the end here, there's some ads, there's some uh, analog software. They have their own published stuff, and there's uh, one called Race in Space, I think, which will be published here in the magazine shortly. And on the back cover is an ad for the Listic again, that Mercury Switch joystick that we got feedback from from last episode that was uh, not as good as it was cracked up to be. So, that's it for the analog. And the analogs are probably going to be the ones I cover in the most detail. Just because, well, yeah, it's my favorite, and at this point, they're still pretty small. Next, we have the Atari Connection. Again, this is the in-house Atari magazine. This is volume one, number three. For fall of 1981, it says. On the cover, there's a picture of two kids at an Atari 800. Looking at the screen, it has a bunch of sort of isometric cubes on it. It says, Introducing Atari Pilot with Turtle Graphics. So opening up, there's some new products. This is the Atari 400 computer system, and it looks like they offered some sort of bundles and they show a picture of some of the old-style silver Atari boxes with the kind of rainbow Atari font. There are kits. There's a programmer kit, the educator kit, the entertainer kit, and the communicator kit. So uh, these, are, I guess, are in addition to a computer system. So you buy these, and it comes up with you know, various things. Like the programmer kit includes uh, basic, the basic reference manual, basic self-teaching guide. And the educator includes the 400 per, 410 program recorder, basic and a, a learning program called States and Capitals. The Entertainer includes a pair of joystick controllers and two exciting and challenging Atari game cartridges, although they don't mention what they are. In the new product section they go on, there's a, some other stuff. There's the Personal finance, Financial Management System, which, shoot, has Wade covered that one? I don't have his list in front of me. He covered Atari's family finances, which may be what this article referred to. And then they talk about, another one talks about Atari Pilot, with turtle graphics. There's a promotion that says, from September 1 through October 31st, 1981, we'll give you a free Atari word processor with the purchase of an 800 and 810 disk drive, two additional 16K RAM modules, 
And all you need to do is fill out the warranty card. So that'll cost you about getting close to 2000 bucks probably. But they'll throw in the free word processor. There's an article about how to photograph your Atari. So photograph your art that you make on your computer screen. There's a profile of uh, Joel Gluck. It says, profile of a 16-year-old programmer. And if you remember ahead in Analog, he has a column called Our Game, or one of his columns anyway, that's the one I remember. And so here it's a profile of him. He's uh, He wrote a program called Babel, which uh, says two players rapidly build towers upwards toward the stars on at the top of the computer screen. The winner is whoever touches the stars first. But you can delay your opponent by crumbling his tower or locking him up, and there's the danger of lightning striking you down. I think that was sold through APX. Oh, in fact, good. <laughs> it says, yeah, it was sold through APX, and he was a winner of one of the APX programming challenges. There's an article about the, the Lawrence Hall of Science in Berkeley about how they use Atari computers. A bunch of kids sitting in the, like a computer on every desk, and they have a kid sitting there listening to the guy talking in the lecture. Yeah, I wish my school had Ataris. They had apples, and I... Yeah, I enjoy programming the apples, but uh, the Ataris are really what I love. There's a little mention of the Visigoth program, which Wade covered in Episode 8. There's an article called Computer Talk Interfacing, where they show a bunch of cables and what plugs into what and how, what you need a 1050 interface or a 850 interface for. There's a list of um, Atari users groups, and one of them is the Atari Computer Users Club, Mike DeShane President, and Cherry Valley Mass. So they're, uh, you can meet at the analog offices, probably. Boy, there are a lot. There's like four pages full of user group listings. Wow. Oh, here's a nice listing. It's um, a listing of magazines that have Atari uh, articles in them. So there's some from Byte Compute, uh, Creative Computing, something called Interface Age, Micro Magazine, which actually I think I'm going to start covering. Not this episode because I'm not ready, but I think it, next episode I probably will. Now we'll look at Byte Magazine, and because of the sheer size of Byte Magazines, I'm really just going to focus on Atari-specific episodes. I mean, these the Byte up issue here is like almost 500 pages, and it's just too much to go through. So Byte Magazine was started in uh, the 70s. So instead of me going through the history of Byte Magazine, I'm going to point you to a, the History of Personal Computer podcast, and they did a, a really nice summary of, of some of these early computer magazines, and specifically Byte. And I forget the episode number. I'll include the episode number in the, and link to it in the show notes. Episode 12. But they, they talk about how there's sort of the, the split between Byte and the owners. And yeah, it's kind of an interesting sort of uh, train wreck of a, of a deal. But here, so this is Byte volume six, number nine for September of 1981. It's still two bucks fifty. So price per page, you're getting a good heck of a deal. There are a lot of ads though, for sure. And so really the reason I'm starting to look at it now is because Deirei Atari is being serialized starting in this issue. So it's, um, looking at the table of contents, page 284, Atari Tutorial Part 1, The Display List by Chris Crawford. And of course, it's, you know, this is a very, it's a very technically oriented magazine. There's articles here, it looks like, on uh, tree searching. Uh, there's an article on AI. There's a high-level language benchmark. Natural language processing. And, um... Well, I said I was only going to cover the Atari. I'm going to break my rule here in the very first one. There's a, an article on the Xerox Alto computer, which, as you may know, is kind of the precursor to um, all the sort of modern GUI-based computers that we have today. 
So Xerox is out here in the Bay Area, and uh, Park is the sort of the research center, is the Palo Alto Research Center, and it still exists today, or the building, of course, does. It's off of was it Woodside Road? Shoot, I can't remember. I've driven by it. So the machine itself, it's not a desktop computer; it's an actual desk. It's um, it says it consists of four major parts: the graphics display, the keyboard, the graphics mouse, and the disk storage slash processor box. Yeah, which looks like a like a small compact refrigerator. It's thirty-two thousand dollars. In 2015 dollars, that's eighty-seven thousand exclamation exclamation one one exclamation. The raster display is eight inches horizontal and ten inches vertical. It says it's six hundred six pixels across and eight hundred eight vertically, which is kind of an oddball display size, and it's about eighty pixels per inch. It doesn't say specifically that I can tell, but I think it's just black and white, not grayscale or certainly not color. But yeah, this is the this is the computer that gave us the mouse, the you know, the GUIs, the buttons, the pull downs. It's a really great summary of the of the system, and I'll leave it to you to to explore it further. But this art this article goes over well, it's about a ten page article, but there's ads and stuff in between. But yeah, really interesting read. And my tablet's taking forever to scroll to page two hundred and eighty six. <laughs> If anybody feels like donating some magazines to the podcast so I can like look through actual magazines, I would be extremely grateful. Magazines are like, I'd be happy to re- just borrow them and return them. Magazines are just like so expensive on, on eBay or something. So, okay, here we go. So yeah, the Atari tutorial, part one, the display list by Chris Crawford, 1272 Boriegas Ave, Sunnyvale. And there's an editor's note here. It says, although I have always considered myself an Apple person, it was exciting to attend a two-day seminar for prospective Atari programmers given by Chris Crawford, Lane Winner, and Mike Eckberg, all of Atari Inc. Once I learned about the internal structure of the 400 and 800 computers, I realized the tremendous potential these machines have. So we at Byte are proud to present the Atari Tutorial, a series of articles written by members of the Atari staff. These subjects include display list, graphics indirection, character sets, Player muscle graphics, displays, interrupts, scrolling, and Atari Basic. This series of articles is adapted from Dairy Atari, a forthcoming book on the internal structure of the Atari computers, to be published in December 1981 by Atari Inc. So yeah, so this essentially has all the condensed details from Dairy Atari, and starts off talking about the principles of a television display and how the beam works. So saying like a single trace of the beam across the screen is called a horizontal scan line. And the horizontal scan line is the fundamental unit of measurement a vertical distance on the screen, so you can just stack all these horizontal scan lines up, and then it goes into details about the horizontal blank being the time it takes from the beam to go from one side at the end of a horizontal row to the beginning of the next row. There's some time that the electron beam has to move, and then the time from the when the beam gets all the way to the bottom till it starts drawing the next one on the top is called the vertical blank. And it talks about color clocks, or the measure of horizontal distance. There are 228 color clocks in a single horizontal scan line, with a maximum of 176 actually visible. And then it talks about half clocks, which is how the Graphics 8 works. That's how you're able to get 320 pixels. But it says the use of this feature produces interesting color effects known as color artifacts. And because, you know, they were restricting themselves to actual NTSC signals, this is the result, is they, they can't get more colors out than that. Whereas I think Apple wasn't exactly, the Apple II wasn't exactly NTSC, so they could do a little bit more, well, in the, in the high-res graphics, anyway. 
and talks about the 400-800 display list and how Antic really is a processor because it has instructions um, and its own programs and, and it access data and stuff. And the instruction set for Antic is actually the display list, so it tells you what graphics mode to use. And there's a little flags you can set for horizontal blank interrupts, uh, scrolling. It talks about some of the quirks of Antic, where um, screen memory can't cross a 4K boundary, so you've got to use the load memory store or load memory scan instruction if that happens. And displaylists themselves can't cross a 1K boundary, so that's just a limitation. You got to use a, a jump command if it does that. Talks a little bit about colors and what colors are available. And so yeah, this is about a, a 16-page article, of course, filled with ads and stuff. There are definitely a lot of ads in Byte. But yeah, so for the next 10 issues of Byte, we're going to get a, a serialized chapter from Dere Atari. So I think that's all I'm going to cover for this episode of, or for this issue of Byte. And as we go, I'll look for other Atari things or maybe interesting articles like the uh, Alto computer. The Compute is issue 16, volume 3, number 9 for September of 1981. Still two bucks fifty on the cover price. The cover says a pet Apple Atari on speaking terms, converting basic programs. And it has another article on uh, modems and has a picture of a guy holding a a phone receiver and telling the computer next to him that it's for you. There's an ad for Atari. It says the graphic difference between Atari computers and all others. So we're emphasizing the graphics. But yeah, there are a few games in there. I thought they would be advertising business aspects, but no, but it's games as well. Computers for people, apparently, was their tagline at that point. There's a beginner's page article about basic, talking about data statements. What is a modem and why do I need one? Talks about how modems work. They go, well, it's kind of technical too. They talk about voltage changes and stuff and simplex, half duplex, full duplex. Simplex is not really useful for modem. It's a transmission in one direction only with no way of responding. It says a TV set is a form of simplex communication. And then half duplex is only one one direction at a time, either receive or transmit. Like CB, I guess, is a good example. And full duplex is like, there's a line for each way, so you can do both at the same time. And at this point, I'll mention the a new podcast called Electric Dreams, where they, they go, it's a BBS podcast, and in the episode one, they have a, a big um, sort of technical description about how modems work and stuff, so I recommend checking that out. So, pet Atari Apple on speaking terms, so there's a, it's about transition between um, Microsoft Basic, which most of the other computers had, and Atari Basic. So string handling is the big deal. And then, of course, all the input stuff, output stuff's different. But yeah, there's a nice long article about this if you're converting some old basic programs. Oh, there's a thing about, if you want to write for compute, it has a big list of, the, there's a style sheet, how you're supposed to format your articles. It says, compute pays between 25 and $250 for published articles, depending on the length. And it tells you how to submit photographs. It should be 5 by 7 black and white glossies. Here's the Atari Gazette. There's a player missile positioning and regular graphics and memory. Sort of how to change the uh, RAM top and stuff so you don't wipe out your player missile graphics when you're trying to like use both a, a redefined character or redefined display list and and uh, players. Here's a column called Inside Atari. It's the um, debut of a column by Bill Wilkinson and other staff members of Optimized System Software. It says, this column will, will normally be written by some of the authors of Atari Basic, Atari's Assemble Editor, Atari's Disk File Manager, Basic A+, and OSA+. We are 
not all experts in Atari hardware, but we know a lot about the software. And this first one is about basic and uh, addressable data, where it says, who needs string arrays? So talking about using other ways of getting data than, uh, it's almost like record formats, you know, where each data entry can be a different variable type. There's an article on the 825, which is that um, the printer, there's this assembler interface to it. So this is the, I think the Centronics-based printer. There's an article using color and locate instructions to program Pong-type games. So there's a, I don't know, probably with a 25-line basic program where instead of using player missile graphics, you're actually checking points on the screen using the, um, yeah, using the locate command, which basically checks the position and returns the color value. There's an Atari basic string sort using a shell sort algorithm. If I can find it, there's a couple images of how shell how, how, how sorting algorithms work. There's a couple graphic ones that kind of show all these, how they work, and it's, it's really pretty cool. If I can find that, I'll put it in the show notes. Not Atari-specific particularly, but... Another article about dynamic player animation with Atari, talking about how you change the character positions, you know, and it has a little example of some guy moving. There's a... a one player is standing with both feet on the ground. One has one leg up, and the other has the other leg up, so you can animate sort of walking or marching. And here's a game called Shoot. The editor's note says, We present the following article, the most comprehensive Atari memory information ever published in a magazine. Because of its length, we had to make a trade-off between source code size and magazine fit. Though it's small, it's quite readable and arranged for your ease of use. So it's a small game. It's kind of reminiscent of um, Air Sea Battle on uh, the 2600. But it's got a complete listing of the source code in uh, assembly. In really, 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 really tiny font. Yeah, I mean, super tiny. It's a long listing, too. It's only like a 3 or 4K program or something. It's pretty small when it's actually compiled. Of course, that just goes to show you that assembly listings are not very dense. I think that's it for the compute. Oh, nope, there's a... In the new product section, the uh, Atari Video Computer System Service Network is formed. They list the... There's centers in uh, Somerset, New Jersey and Sunnyvale, California. Check out Antic Interview Episode 33 with Louis Masucci. Alright, and that's actually it for the for the compute. Alright, let's look at compute. I'd be wrong. Alright, let's look at creative computing. This is September 1981, Volume 7, Number 9. This is a special issue. This is a buyer's guide issue for winter 1982. It doesn't have a lot of the usual articles. It just has a huge number of buying guide list thingies in here. Like, looking at the table of contents, as a section on computers, there's a sort of overview article, which computer is for you, and what can you buy for under $1,000? Those are a couple articles. And then individual articles on the something called the APF Imagination Machine 2, the Commodore VIC-20, the LNW-80, whatever that is. Xerox enters the personal computer market, the HP-43 and the NEC PC-8001. Without looking at the table of contents, and we'll look at this in a little bit more detail in a second. And for the, there's more, there's like 10 peripheral articles. You want to buy a printer, monitor, more memory, a music synthesizer, plotters, large and small, the Z80 soft card for your Apple II, they review that one. And then it has some software sections on Apple DOS, Apple Disk Utilities, some basics, stuff for the TRS-80 and TI-994. And then there's another section on uh, other consumer electronics. They have an article, Home Computer versus the Video Game. 
They have new games for the Atari VCS, electronic games, Roundup, and other stuff. So this is, there's no there's no Atari specific column in this issue. I apologize if the sound recording sounds a little bit different too. I'm on a different microphone. I'm sitting at my normal desktop machine, so I can look at the um, archive.org website instead of trying to download. I don't know for whatever reason, Creative Computing downloading the PDFs is like super slow. On I've tried like six different PDF viewers, and it just takes forever to to flip pages. But the web version seems fine, so I'm just using that right now on the web. But the mic is... I'm just using a little headset mic now, so the quality is not as good as the other one I have. So looking at the Which Computer is For You article by Betsy Staples, it sort of suggests to figure out what you want to do with it first, like find out what software is available on particular platforms, and then use that to make the decision on the machine to buy. Big Note says, A higher price tag does not automatically designate a better computer. As we know, the Atari is cheaper than the Apple. So there you go. There's an article, what can you buy for under $1,000? And it lists a bunch of machines. There's the Sinclair, the ZX80, which is a, a pretty limited computer, but it was listing for, um, was it $100? No, 199 And the VIC-20, which is 299 that's certainly a capable machine. The TRS-80 color computer is a uh, 16K version is $599. And there's this APF Imagination machine which uses the uh, Motorola 6800 chip. But this is really the first I've seen of it. The TI-994, this is not the 4A. Oh, they do talk a little about the 4A. For, for some reason, the 994 is more expensive than the 4A. But I don't see the differences offhand. This article also includes a column about the Intellivision, talking about the keyboard component, which, as you know, if you've listened to the Intellivisionaries podcast, never actually comes out. Then they get to the Atari 400-800 machine, of course. Then uh, talk about the TRS-80 Model 3. Then you see the PC-8001. And it lists for $1,295. It looks to be a Z80 processor and 32K of RAM. They talk about the Apple II, the OSI Challenger. There's a Hitachi MB6890, which then, oh, uses a 6809 processor. It says a dazzling 640 by 200 dot resolution with seven colors. And then following on, there's a big table that lists all those and the features of each. I think the Atari wins. Yep. There's a little overview article on this APF Imagination Machine. It's APF Electronics is the company, but yeah, clearly it didn't make a lot of inroads. Then there's some more summaries, like there's one on the VIC. There's uh, the LNW80, which looks like it's a TRC clone. And that's just a little bit about Xerox entering the personal computer market. Looks like it's a Z80 machine running CPM, so it's not the Alto, which means it's cheaper than the Alto and probably smaller. And then they get into the printer stuff. It's in the back in the days, of course, the dot matrix printers, and so we have to check how many pins that the printhead has, and you know, there's a lot of different quality things where now it's pretty much laser printers, dots, print, and you're done. Section on monitors. There's a lot of ads in this magazine, too. I think people probably took advantage of knowing this was a a buying guide issue, so there's a lot of like companies with all their prices and stuff. The article on the VCS goes into games like Circus Atari, Dodge Maze Craze, Championship Soccer, Night Driver, Freeway by Activision, Tennis by Activision, Fishing Derby, Laser Blast, Skiing, all those by Activision. But a bit unusual, they don't usually cover VCS stuff, but I guess this being a buyer's guide issue and they're covering other electronic games. As the next article talks about like these handheld games and stuff. 
Or those little football, handheld football games with like a row of probably 10 LEDs wide and five tall or something. And you're, you're trying to move their little LED pixel to the right while the other person was playing, trying to like tackle your LED with their LED. These are, these are just like rectangular sort of dashes going across this little TV screen. That was our, uh, those were our iPhone games back then. There's like Othello, chess, Scrabble, electronic games, that kind of stuff. Even go into some like VCRs and VHS versus Betamax. So if you're a collector or something, this magazine would probably be a, a good one to look at this issue. Not a lot of Atari computer stuff in this one. Now look at Soft Side, September 1981, Volume 4, Number 12, $3 cover price. The cover program is Flip It, which is an Othello-like program. Reversi, I guess, if you're not into trademark names. There's a teeny column by Scott Adams, Say Yoho, very small this time. It says, this month I'll be talking about some of my experiences with one of the newer machines, the Atari 800. It talks about his, uh, his adventures and how they're all written in assembly using a common interpreter. So it says once he has an interpreter running on a specific machine, he can transfer the database over. See Antic Interview Episode 25 with Scott Adams. And then it says, well, voila, then I have the entire series done. It says on the TRS-80, the interpreter is 6K of code, but he said he needed 22K of memory on the Atari. He said he had a problem that it was, um, he was trying to transfer the data from one computer to the other using the 850 interface and ran into trouble, so he called the Atari Technical Service Group. And he said, I spoke for quite a while with their support people who were extremely courteous and knowledgeable. Atari has set up this special group just to help outside software houses use their computers better, a tactic that both, both Tandy and Apple would do well to emulate. Which is interesting, so now we finally maybe have them, have Atari embracing third-party developers. But he says uh, he'll continue this story in next month. So that's all we get, a little teaser. So the main program is Flip It, which is yeah, like this like reverse eye program. And it's, uh, it's a one-player game. I didn't get a chance to try this out this time. So I wonder how difficult it is. I wonder how... Uh, challenging the computer opponent is. There are versions for the Apple, Atari, and TRS-80. And here's an ad for the Micro, the 6502-6809 journal. And I think I'm going to start covering this magazine. I'm kind of curious to read it. It's pretty, it looks like it's pretty technical. I kind of poked through it, but I didn't do enough research this time. But hopefully next issue, next episode, I'll look at it. There's another game called Word Challenge. That's for the Atari. It's supposed to guess a five-letter word before your opponent does. But yeah, I didn't try this one either. It's in basic, and the one thing I would I would do want to say about the way they've um, I can't remember when this happened, but they they started in the basic listings, they started breaking out the code into little sections, and so there's a header that sort of describes what the next section does, and then so there's you know a group of you know could be five lines, twenty lines, whatever, but they they say um, oh okay this section does you know input or whatever. So I do like the way they broke up those listings. So it's not just a dense listing with the uh, Comments, or only comments being the thing, but you know, having these section headers I think helps as well. A bunch of the usual ads for TSE Hardside. Not Atari related, but there's a review of Robot War by a guy named Silas Warner, who I remember from the Apple days. Muse Software. I remember seeing all these games at school. It's on the Apple II. And before seeing the Atari, I, the Apple II games were just amazing. You know, the, the first time you see any of this, any sort of new technology, it's just like, well, this is amazing. And of course the Apple had uh, more primitive graphics than the Atari, but Still, they were pretty impressive to somebody who'd never seen this stuff before. And now we move on to the game review section. And game reviews are sort of back. 
This is going to be an overview of flight simulators. I talked with Chris Olson, who did a great episode on the DOS Nostalgia podcast about DOS games. And they, he and Anatoly went over like just a huge amount of DOS flight simulators. And I thought, wouldn't that be great to do that for the Atari? So I, I contacted Chris, and he's, he was kind enough to say that would be super awesome, and did a lot of research. And uh, yeah, he did a lot of the heavy lifting here. He, did, he looked at all of the games. I didn't have a chance to look at all of them. But for this is a, a two-part thing. For this first part, we're going to look at civilian flight simulators. For part two, we'll look at military flight simulators. In this first part, I also talked to Chris about his background in the, with the Ataris and how he got involved in flying. He's a, he's a commercial pilot. So I'm, I was really curious to hear about how flight simulators affected his path, you know, his, his chosen career. So we recorded this first part on April 29th, 2015. Since we're talking about flight simulators here, did um, did you get interested in flying before you ever got a flight simulator? Or how, I mean, how early on did you get really interested in, in actual flying? You know, because your career now, obviously, you're, you're a pilot. Yeah, uh, for sure. And it, it, it's kind of hard to remember, but uh, I, I seem to recall always having a, a keen interest in in airplanes and, and aviation, you know, a plane would fly over. I would certainly wonder what it is or what kind it was or why it was so noisy versus maybe <laughs> another one making a, a different kind of sound. And, and certainly in the seventies you know, and eighties, you'd have a lot of, uh, airplanes without hush kits on flying. So, you know, be pretty loud, um, especially being, you know, somewhat close to the, uh, you know, airports in Chicago. But, uh, so I actually think the, uh, maybe at least the spark for aviation was there before the flight simulators, but, mm. Um, being uh, exposed to the computers and this kind of early crop of flight simulators definitely cemented, um, you know, my interest in, you know, in kind of pursuing aviation further and eventually into into a career. A little tangent on how you actually got into your career. Then, did you have to? Because um, I know you're you're not military. Is that right? You. Went That's civilian? right. No, I, I went the civilian route, which um, as. Uh, I guess becoming a little bit more common, but uh, certainly in the in the job that I hold currently, there are many many people who have uh, military backgrounds, even if it's not in flying, where maybe they were, uh, um, you know, aerospace engineers or you know served in some other capacity, and then were able to kind of pursue flying either alongside or um, as a result of their military service. So no, it was the uh, all civilian uh, route uh, for me is definitely. And so, did you have to get your private pilot's license for like, um, and or during college, or um, how did? Yeah, so I um, I didn't really have anyone else in the family who who flew, so I was kind of uh, not really on my own, but uh, kind of had to kind of discover some of this without uh, really having you know an advisor to say, oh, you should probably do this or that. So uh, I was able, to, very fortunate, I was able to take a course in high school. Uh, aviation science, which huh. was the context of a private pilot ground school course uh, at a very, very slow pace, so broken up over two semesters. And it was intended to prepare you to take the private pilot written exam at the end of the semester if you so choose. I, I actually didn't do that, but uh, I did end up after um, high school was over with, went to college, and then I Actually, my first summer job was in Florida in between my freshman and sophomore year. I was able to fly there, and um, all the work I had done in aviation science, I was able to, to take the uh, private pilot exam with, without uh, too much trouble. So I had looked into another component of the course was uh, the whole class, I think about 12 of us in there, were supposed to be able to go for 
what they call an intro flight, where you jump in a, a small plane, a Cessna 172, and basically do kind of a one uh, one circuit in the pattern where you need to take off and make your uh, you know your kind of rectangular pattern around and come back and with the help of the instructor, kind of both hands on, you know, oh here's what you do: you put the flaps out, you know, slow to this airspeed and come in and land. And wouldn't you know it, the weather for that day was uh, just uh, typical. Chicago springtime where it was kind of low clouds and rainy and kind of awful. So yeah. we ended up going out to the airport, but it was more just kind of, um, you know, kind of crawl around the airplanes and <laughs> kind of do that. So it was uh, kind of unfortunate. But after having done that, I looked into the cost of, um, you know, hourly cost of lessons and uh, instructors and materials and all that. And uh, a friend of mine, uh, his, uh, he was actually taking flight lessons at a, at a different spot. And his dad flew in the army in, uh, in the kind of the early '60s, so he was uh, kind of pursuing that. He'd actually been doing that since he was in junior high. So I had actually did have somebody I could kind of turn to, but he wasn't able to really pursue it uh, all at once. He would kind of fly a little bit, then have to kind of take a few months off and kind of oh, back yeah. and forth. So I actually probably should have talked to him more about it. But uh, once I got to Florida, I found out that the cost of flying there was really truly about half of what it was in the Chicago area. Mm, wow. And uh, just kind of 18 years old on my own, you know, kind of living and, and working a lot. But I was able to uh, just get very fortunate, found a great flight school, was able to start kind of the private pilot curriculum and uh, had to kind of, uh, I, I didn't, wasn't able to quite finish there. So I went to a couple of different locations, went back to school, found a spot to fly there. Uh, did a, yet another internship in New Mexico, was able to fly there, and then came back to school. So now we're two, um, you know, just about a week or two into my sophomore year, was able to get my private pilot license there. And then, um, you know, kind of the, the rest of the story is I had, uh, was able to kind of the following year achieve uh, a schedule where I could fly three or four days a week, worked through the rest of my ratings, and tried to plan it where graduating from college would coincide with attaining my commercial rating and flight inspector rating and that pretty much worked out so i was basically able uh-huh. to um kind of hit the ground running and that would have been right around the year 2000 so everything was humming economy was good a lot of people were flying people were changing careers saying i did you know i was a let's say a computer programmer for 20 years i always wanted to fly so i actually uh encountered you know several of those folks who said i've always wanted to do this you know saved up money i'm going to take a crack at it uh-huh. and uh those are some of my best students but then of course 2001 not a real good year for aviation so everyone's plans kind of shifted but right. uh it did uh kind of allow me a path to go to my first airline there which i did in 2001 had kind of some big time ups and downs but then uh was able to have a, a pretty decent uh run for about the last uh kind of 12 or 13 years and actually uh, was just able to kind of start with one of the larger airlines here, and I'm actually in training kind of as we speak. So uh, this is a, a wonderful uh, break from learning uh, a brand-new airplane and systems and all that. So that's kind of the uh, – I know it sounds long, but that's the uh, – I can – I've told that story so many times I can take an hour <laughs> and a half to do it. So trying not to uh, really get too wrapped up in the, in the details there. No, that's great. It's uh, Yeah, it's nice that you were able to – to follow your dream of flying and, and, you know, keep moving up and no pun intended. It was, uh, it was something, uh, probably uh, I realized, uh, from a career standpoint 
it was when I was in New Mexico. I was in, uh, actually doing an internship in, in Santa Fe. And it was at that point, a totally unrelated aviation, by the way, just uh, kind of a, a different field. And it was at that point I said, I need to try to pursue this as a career. I will regret it if I don't. This is kind of what I feel like I was meant to do. And it's something I really, really enjoy. So at that point, I'm trying to think, I was probably 19, 20 years old, where I said, all right, this is, I'm going to you know, try to change a few things and uh, really focus on this. And uh, even though my college degree wasn't really related to aviation, I was able to kind of pursue both tracks and uh, um, obviously I had to make sure I went to class and didn't uh, have to meet my <laughs> academic obligations. The degree. That's right. <laughs> that's, that's right. But, um, but I, luckily I was able to uh, kind of eke it out to where I could uh, kind of do both. And um, as I accumulated more hours, I, I could go for, you know, if I went a couple weeks without flying, it wasn't detrimental. Whereas in the beginning and then working on certain parts of it, that was the uh, kind of the biggest uh, the biggest issue where uh, you know folks were able to fly three or four days a week or even just you know do some type of groundwork where maybe you can chair fly or you know how uh, um, how appropriate here kind of load up and, and load a simulator and do some work on your own that was really that kind of continuity of learning was uh, was really important but I kind of got to a point where uh, that maybe wasn't quite as important to me with a couple hundred hours under my belt, mm. whereas in the beginning it, it really was. Yeah, and then, well, speaking of simulators, I, I guess the uh, sort of the granddaddy of simulators on the 8-bits is, is Flight Simulator 2. Yes, yes, indeed. And uh, what, uh, what, what, a, what, a great, uh, what a great product and kind of a really interesting history with uh, Microsoft and Certainly, before that, Bruce Artwork and Sublogic. Yeah. Uh, so the uh, Flight Simulator Two on the on the eight bits is an interesting one. Uh, it's out there. I think the most common form is actually in cartridge. Is that what uh, is that what you encountered when uh, when you were were looking, or maybe you had it uh, growing up there? Yeah. When I when I had it growing up, I like most of my stuff. It was pirated, so I had it on a disc and. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. See. So do I. And actually, it's 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 worth discussing. I remember running this on the Atari 800, but in my kind of quest to load up and and take a look at this, I I couldn't actually run the cartridge unless I emulated an XC. Did Did you run into uh, the same thing? Hmm. I got a I got an odd thing that said it will not run on Atari 400 or 800 due to memory. So I can tell you for certain I ran it on disk and. Uh, and ran it on the 800. I, I, I think I, I really probably would have remembered if, if we had to boot up the XL or later on the AXC. But um, um, I had but this pretty anyway. early on, and I think I had my XL first, and I didn't get okay. the, I didn't get the 800 till about till 84. I, I, I got it okay. sort of secondhand. So I, gotcha. I think I mostly ran it on the XL. Come to the, come to think of it. Okay. Alrighty. Well, it's uh, it's 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 definitely an interesting one in the uh, in the history of Flight Simulator. It's uh, um, it's worth noting that I believe it was the first version that uh, showed any type of buildings, and you get a nice wireframe mm-hmm. um, display of the Hancock Building or the or the Sears Tower, and uh, the instrument display pretty similar to uh, what you had in, in the very first version of Flight Simulator, where you just had uh, basically monochrome and, and kind of wireframe graphics. 
yeah. I remember the frame rate being a lot better than it actually was. I was going to say uh, the same thing. <laughs> my my goodness, uh, you know, I, and maybe that's maybe that's an, an emulator thing. I, I was not able to uh, to run it on on native hardware before before loading up here, but um, there are definitely other flight sims that that run a little bit smoother. But the uh, the one kind of through line through all the versions of Flight Simulator, and this this one certainly included, is the uh, the level of detail in both the simulation and all of the accompanying materials, from the manual to um, you know to the uh, quick reference card and all that. It's just very very painstakingly detailed to where even in a uh, you know you have to imagine every byte, every you know possible register is accounted for, every optimization is done to try to you know, maximize the uh, storage and be able to display all this on screen. Right. Um, there are, you know, a litany of keyboard commands and uh, really an impressive level of detail, even for, um, you know, a simulator that that really, um, I, I, sh- I guess a, I can say time hasn't been uh, too kind to, you know, looking at some screenshots or, you know, kind of when I loaded up uh, a couple hours ago. Yeah. But uh, it does give you the ability to uh, simulate a, um, kind of a you know a fully functional instrument landing system, you know what we call ILS and uh, ground-based navigation with with VORs. The presentation is uh, it's you know it's it's a little bit um, it, it's clear that you know the, the, the screen real estate is really at uh, uh, you know it's tough to get everything in there if you don't have a, a large monitor if it's not hooked up to maybe like a widescreen display. It's pretty tough to make make it all out, but the movement of the instrument panel, as far as like air, airspeed and altitude, is uh, is is pretty good. And um, you know the sounds. The you know I always thought the uh, kind of through line for propellers that that sound is uh, is a little bit annoying. But uh, as far as marker beacons and uh, and everything else, they they do a pretty darn good job. Um, and I always thought that uh, you know the fact that it started you at mixed field was. Uh, um, you know, kind of a well. Nowadays, it's a real tip of the cap because Mixfield is gone. That's a whole other story, unfortunately. But uh, that's a, kind of an interesting one. But uh, for years and years and years, there were people who, uh, you know, would use these simulators and would never, probably ever go to Mixfield. But uh, this was a neat thing that uh, Sublogic and then later on Microsoft uh, would keep uh, up through. Yeah, certainly some recent version. I don't think it's like that anymore. I think it defaults to the very first um, entry in the database or something uh, nowadays. But oh. it was, uh, you know, it was. I want to say maybe 2010 or 2009, where Mixfield was your your default airport. And oh, it must have been fun when, for you uh, since you were in Chicago. Then. Yeah, and I luckily I I got to I got to fly in in and out of Mixfield about uh, maybe, you know, probably. 50 or 60 times, which in its last uh, iteration of being open was uh, quite expensive. The landing fees were basically kind of designed to really drive people out. <laughs> so I happened to have a person with a, a really nice brand new airplane who did a lot of work downtown. And it was kind of one of these things where he said, I'm too busy. I, I, you know, I want to fly this airplane, but I can't quite devote enough time to really kind of get my license. But if you don't mind, you know, taking me from here to there. Uh, you know, meet me at MIGS and we'll go for it. So it was actually kind of a great deal. <laughs> yeah. um, so I got to uh, I got to go in and out of there and uh, feel, especially now that it's closed and it's, you know, it's not ever going to reopen, uh, for at least in you know in its kind of yeah. former 
um, it's uh, I feel fortunate I was able to do that. But how many versions and how many computers had I seen it in flight simulators? So that was uh, kind of a nice way to kind of close the loop on that one. Yeah, and I have another but, Chicago question for you. Does, oh, sure. Do Chicagoans still call it Sears Tower or do they call it Willis Tower? Oh, no. <laughs> a- absolutely. Um, no, we still call it the Sears Tower. Uh, Willis, I and mean, it's been, and actually the crazy thing is, it, I believe it's just going to change names again. I know, I just heard um, that. Yeah, I just read that today. Or so, yeah. yeah, I don't know if they've really decided yet, but um, now it was it was a Sears Tower for so long that uh, you'd see news reports of the newspaper would, would refer to it as Willis. And maybe in the last year or so, people finally... Um, started to maybe refer to it that way but no i still the sears tower yeah yeah so i just remember you know just the, just the having the sears tower and the hancock center around there just flying around just having the, the monuments there were, yeah just yeah, a lot of fun just to, yeah. <laughs> just to zip around oh definitely for sure um i still think about that I, I fly in and out of there quite a bit and uh still very neat i'm clearly biased but it is yeah. a pretty neat skyline they, they picked a good one to uh definitely kind of carry forward and I'm pretty sure I saw this in, um, you know, there's a, you know, there's some, you know, Bruce out artwork and everything it was, uh, it started in, in Champaign, Illinois, uh-huh. I believe while he was a student at uh, UIUC mm-hmm. or a grad student or is somewhere involved in the university. And for many years, Sublogic was actually uh, headquartered there. So I have a feeling there's a, you know, a kind of a, at least a, an Illinois connection, if not a Chicago connection to uh, <laughs> making the decision to model you know chicago in the very very early versions of flight simulator and um it's as the kind of versions kind of chugged through and and different platforms flight simulator 2 is um it's the first time you could actually get uh, a view of the aircraft not a full kind of shot from the outside that wouldn't come until uh, like the ST versions and then mm-hmm. in the PC world, it was Flight Simulator 3 where you could actually get a full, uh, like a chase plane view or kind of different cameras whatnot. But in Flight Simulator 2, you could actually see, uh, look outside and see the rudders and the wing, which was uh, which was pretty neat. And then the, uh, the coordinate system is one of the things that, you know, Flight Simulator, especially in its later versions, is most well known for. And in this version... The coordinates weren't very accurate. I think you could get within 256 feet based on the kind of modeling and mapping that they did. Oh, yeah. So um, you couldn't really place an airplane on the runway, but you could get it, you know, certainly within a city. And then the, the version that would follow uh, right after that um, actually introduced the, um, you know, the coordinate system that really persisted in kind of almost the same version for, for many versions beyond that. Well, I remember something um, called, is this the... I, mean, I think they call it skewing, where you kind of like yes, uh, yeah, uh, slewing, slewing, yeah, 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 yeah. Where uh, and and that was uh, and that was what you had to do. So um, you know, if you if you wanted to kind of you know type in your position, really the uh, the only way you could kind of place yourself where you wanted to be was was slewing. And uh, and it's it's really interesting that term is is still used. I actually just heard it last night. Hmm. Um, so, I mean, that, that has definitely talked about kind of inventing, uh, you know, something that's, it's gone on to be used in kind of commercial use and, huh. and all over the place. Uh, that is, uh, and is definitely still, still present, but that would be the, uh, where you could, um, you know, just kind of freeze everything and, and move and, and then kind of drop yourself, you know, set everything, get out yeah. of the freeze and, uh, and kind of go back. So, so yeah, that's, uh, that's true. And that, that was really what, uh, what you had to do or you know 
just uh, fly along at 90 knots and go all the way from Chicago <laughs> to Champaign, which was, I mean, that definitely had its uh, had its advantages too. But uh, there's not a lot of scenery uh, between, and I don't no. know what areas the game included, but there was not a whole lot of scenery available. Yeah, no, that, that's true. And once again, it's really um, the next version, which I think uh, I think it lived on as maybe 2.1. But the uh, the important piece there is the uh, the sixteen bit processors saw mm-hmm. um, a big uh, you know were were targeted for the for the next release so the STs in there um, the Amiga uh, you know the Mac it was actually a pretty popular uh, Mac product and that's where uh, you did see different cities so I think they added in like you know of course you had still in Chicago but then you had San Francisco and it would just kind of grow from there to where in the uh, in the kind of you know, early '90s, you had uh, more even you know, photorealistic kind of satellite-based stuff. For, uh, but it was still. It's. I want to say five was kind of the magic number. Where you'd, you'd get uh, really good scenery for you know Chicago, San Fran, Seattle, maybe New York, and and uh, maybe one other one. But uh, in the early days, I think it was it was it was pretty limited. Of course, there was um, one of the big uh, kind of through lines through the later versions of Flight Simulator was this uh, ability to add scenery mm-hmm. and that would uh, appear uh, in that version that would kind of uh, follow the 8-bit version, so the uh, VST and everything yeah. you got. Well, just, you know, uh, just was, the 8-bits being limited by not having hardware multiplication or division right. you know, just oh, like, <laughs> hampers it yeah. so much. Absolutely. Um, I don't know this for sure. I'm, I'm fairly certain most of this was written in, in machine code. And it's worth noting, so many products in the Atari family um, either either saw cross-platform releases or more often not reported. And uh, I know it's been discussed. Uh, um, uh, very interesting to hear the, uh, the different takes on that. But this was absolutely uh, the case, uh, you know, ported, uh, you know, 6502 common between the Apple, Commodore, and Atari. Yeah. And uh, if you were to load this version, you would, I mean, honestly, it's its really hard to tell. Uh, the opening screen it presents where it says, uh, what display are you using? Color, mm-hmm. composite monitor, black and white TV. Um, I, I, you'd, I, I, obviously, it would, the text would be a little different, but that exact same thing on the Apple is, uh, it's almost impossible just from a screenshot to tell which version you're loading up so um you know the uh uh the atari one did it did boast i am trying to think of what graphics mode it would be but it was actually eight colors which is i think part of the reason it was so sluggish but um i think it did have some advantages over the uh the apple and the c64 version but um i i did encounter it on the apple i never played it on a a commodore 64 and i imagine you know there were probably some uh some things that did better certainly when we talk about some of the rest of these you know that did have uh um you know some very very limited speech capabilities which uh um you know on the c64 but uh that's a, a different product but yeah this uh this, this to me, I remember uh, kind of growing up. The, the, and this was another really kind of amazing thing Flight Simulator did for in really every version. The uh, the night the nighttime lighting in the cockpit was different, and it was just uh, different enough to where it was just really really neat. So uh, even though it's a pretty rudimentary display, um, that was another thing they would continue to refine and uh, to where. Um, if you look at the uh, kind of Flight Simulator Five in the MS DOS era, that. Uh, yeah. where you've got a digitized panel and the nighttime it's just perfect i mean it, it looks exactly like the uh 
you know, the Cessna 172 night lighting kind of suite where you've got just red lights. And uh, uh, I mentioned it before, but it always makes me think of a submarine or <laughs> or one of these things where it really is just, um, you know, kind of uh, the uh, instruments all have that, uh, you know, some sort of luminescent property where the red light's on, so it, it kind of preserves your night vision, but uh, the uh, uh, the luminant uh, parts of it kind of just, just glow just a little bit. It's really, and they did a great job modeling that, and, but really, they can trace that back to uh, uh, kind of the change in, uh, in display or how it looks at nighttime, and that was uh, always kind of neat, especially in these early versions where it wasn't really a whole lot to see, so if you did get uh, maybe a few highway lights or even just airport lights or something, yeah. it was uh, almost preferable to put it at nighttime, because then you didn't really miss any of the scenery that you weren't seeing it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, um, definitely challenging. A lot of uh, key- keyboard commands and frame rate. Uh, if you could, uh, you know, if you could, if you could take off and, and land, or, or even more, if you could navigate uh, by instruments, pop out of the clouds and land. Uh, boy, that's uh, that's a pretty big accomplishment. Just really, uh, kind of more of a UI and control uh, challenge more than uh, actual kind of measure of flying skill. I think there were um, simulators that accomplished what Flight Simulator did quite a bit better in the 8-bit realm, but uh, important to note that, I mean, this was uh, a kind of a landmark product for computers in general, and the fact that um, Sublogic was able to to get a version onto the 8-bit that uh, it did pretty well and could boast eight colors was something they could hold up and say, well, you know, we can do this, and, you know, given the constraints of the machine uh, yeah. and everything else. So I I, I definitely did, uh, did play it as a, certainly as a kid, uh, it was punishingly difficult, and uh, <laughs> like you with you know, having a, uh, a non-official copy, um, the keystrokes, it was just, a, all right, let's try to figure them out. You know, some of them were logical, like, you know, G for landing gear, but uh, some of the other ones weren't. And even to this day, uh, even in, uh, you know, modern hardware, the keystrokes, I think, have it's almost, you know, purposely done. So you try to make sure people have a manual. I don't know. But, yeah, uh, form of copy uh, protection, really. <laughs> golly, what a, what a deal. I mean, it, it, nowadays or you can get it, you get to it in a help file or whatnot. But man, uh, I just wonder, you know, it's code bases change and everything else. At that point, it could really do with uh, maybe a, a little bit of a, a redo of all the, the yeah. <laughs> but on the other hand, uh, you've got, you know, generations of people who know that the parking brakes have been the, you know, the, the, the dot or the period forever. And if you were to change that, you'd probably get backlash from, you know, 35 year users of flight simulator, probably me included to go, Oh, why did you? So eh, kind of a, an impossible situation there, but, uh, um, but it was, uh, uh, the ability to just jump in and fly, uh, was not really, uh, the strong suit of a uh, flight simulator that's for sure but it was never really intended to be in it in its earlier kind of version it was that was part of it was to be able to you know man- manipulate the systems and uh kind of get the airplane in a in a state where you could you know go fly and then kind of go from there so yeah, kind of emphasize uh, the simulation aspect more than the exactly aspect. to where you know you might need to turn the lights on or turn the battery switch on or like that and actually to to be fair the uh the, you know this is, is kind of a a, a good mix where um, you know, it, it doesn't just leave you with all the lights out and everything else. But um, you know, if you don't put a few little flaps and and some other stuff, then you'll have a tough time getting off the ground at mixed field for sure. So, so yeah. But uh, yeah. but that's uh, that, that's that's pretty much pretty much it on uh, on Flight Simulator Two. I 
um, I, I always kind of got the feeling that it was a re- reluctantly ported to the 8-bit, but once it was, it was embraced by uh, people who had either encountered it on the uh, on other platforms, and, uh, and maybe like the fact that uh, I, I'm I'm not 100% certain of this, but I believe the Apple version was four colors, and you know you had eight in the uh, the Atari version, and I you know I remember at least I I really don't remember being bugged by the the slow frame rate kind of growing up. I don't but, either. Uh, Boy, going back to it, it is. Yeah. It was. Uh, it was like I said. It was definitely. Um, it was definitely kind of rough. So yeah, and that's what I. You know, looking back at all these programs today, that's kind of what I, the common factor among all of them was. Really, the frame rate is just really tough yeah. to deal with now. Whereas back then, I I thought it was great. You know. And, yeah. Uh, so so the ones that really give you that that fluid sense really do stick out that that is uh yeah i think we won't get into many more of those until probably the second part you know the right part two of this when we discuss kind of the military simulators is really really when we get the higher frame rates definitely and then uh definitely but uh yeah so i think probably the the next game i probably really got interested in was uh solo flight absolutely and uh and this is uh i you know i wanted to go ahead uh, i've got this this one is 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 very important to me kind of growing up but uh, i don't want to uh, uh i don't, I don't want to rob you the opportunity to talk about it so i'm just curious in what uh kind of setting you encountered it and uh, we'll maybe compare notes and see yeah. if it's kind of a similar uh similar experience yeah and I again, I got a pirated copy, but I found this one a lot easier just to pick up and fly. And there, there weren't quite as many, you know, keystroke commands, and they didn't have the detailed instrument panel like you did on on Flight Simulator Two. I don't know, you know, having the having the view out of the where you can see the whole plane, like you have the chase plane view the whole time. I kind of, I almost like the cockpit version sometimes, but then it really, in terms of seeing, you know, for me being a non-pilot, kind of seeing the the whole runway, you know, how it was just easier for me to deal with a little bit. Um, I don't know if you felt it was easier for you to deal with uh, out of cockpit versus in cockpit or yeah you know it's um it's 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 a great point and uh, i believe it's the first um you know the first simulator as far as timeline that actually uh kind of defaulted or gave you that uh that uh, kind of odd third person view where you still had the uh you know the reference to the instrument panel inside but you could still see the airplane mm-hmm. and it was uh it was great uh because from a from a just, uh, you know, what do I do? You know, if I, you know, move the stick left, what's the airplane going to do? The right wing's going to rise. I'm going to start turning left. So to kind of uh, understand the the four forces, you know, you know, right. you know, lift, thrust, drag, et cetera, and then to where, you know, just basic control inputs can see actually what the airplane's doing. Um, that was very useful for, you know, trying to understand what was actually happening and really in kind of shaping you know, how simulators handled that, uh, certainly in, in the later days where, you know, you'd have a complicated, you know, cameras and, you know, kind right. of cutting from view to view. Select your but, view, yeah. Uh, um, but it's it's worth noting, this uh, this is, there was Solo Flight and then Solo Flight 2nd Edition. And for years and years, I thought that I had the the first one. And in, in looking at, uh, and kind of comparing here, uh, I think i unwittingly had the uh the second the solo flight second edition and i don't know that i actually um even you know even maybe found the first one so oh really yeah because uh, i didn't i didn't discover the second one until we were doing research for this and i i had the first one with you know sort of the compact instrument panel and the, yeah. sec- the second one has the the student or instructor pilot 
thing. I don't know. I don't remember that. Yeah, I, I, I didn't think I did either. So I, you know, is it possible I had a, a hacked together version? That I suppose so. But um, uh, this was, uh, this was. I want to say the first one was. Uh, let's see, 1983. That's right. Yeah. Good, good year for Atari games for sure. Yeah. Uh, other than the uh, the big uh, video game crash, but absent that, um, it came from Microprose and um, one of the. You know, one of the first, not the first, but certainly one of the first uh, products where Sid Meier's name was really out in front of it. And um, it, it's just so inherently interesting to me, the history of these early studios, either ones that um, maybe didn't go on to do you know, things beyond the Atari 8-bit or that did continue on for many, mm-hmm. many years. In Microprose's case, they did uh, persist all throughout the 80s, 90s, and, and into the 2000s where... Um, you know, they were able to, to hang on to some of the roots and continue to make simulations and whatnot. And uh, this really, um, as far as kind of uh, just a little bit of background on Microprose, um, Sid Meier, who's famous for, oh boy, what is he most famous for? Probably Civilization. Yeah, Civilization, I would guess, yeah, if I had to uh, guess, yeah. That, I mean, that's probably one that, you know, almost uh, anyone who's played a computer game knows um, whether they played it or not. But um, a lot of people don't realize that, uh, you know, it, even in kind of an era where you didn't really put your name in front of things. Uh, Sid Meier was doing that with Microprose, and he founded it with uh, somebody from the military, a guy named uh, Major Bill Steely. And uh, kind of the goal back then was to, you know, create uh, simulations. And um, certainly they they did more military simulators than uh, civilian ones, but with Solo Flight, uh, it was just something that that I came upon, kind of, I believe, the same way you did. And yeah. <laughs> it, it was it was great because it it certainly had a lot in common with uh, Flight Simulator 2 and kind of the Microsoft Sublogic products, but it presented it in a slightly easier way to kind of really interact with. So the, the Flight Simulator manual was, it was super detailed, and um, if you wanted to basically sit down and say, all right, I'm going to learn about the Learjet, I'm going to learn about the Cessna 172, um, after having read that flight simulator manual, you might not have understood it, but you could, all right, well, you know, 92 pages of this and then a <laughs> kind of a, a seminar on aeronautics and everything. And it felt uh, like uh, maybe, you know, that would prepare you for some type of college level course. With solo flight, the, um, the hook was that you could, uh, you know, kind of, kind of basically haul the mail where um, some of the, in the very early versions of kind of campaign mode or some type of structured, um, you know, sort of, you know, do this task and then, uh, you know, kind of, all right, once you've gotten here, you can kind of go there almost like a mission-based type yeah. uh, type type scenario. But also the focus was on trying to really teach you about some of the aspects of, of flying and navigation. And uh, for solo flight, uh, this is my, one of my kind of favorite things about flying and, and simulators in general. I remember, um, you know, actually, we did, we did have a purchase copy of this one because I did I had the manual, I had the box, oh. and uh, and that's maybe the only reason I know. I think it was the red box with the uh, kind of big airplane on it. So whatever edition that is, I really unfortunately it's long gone, can't remember. But um, I remember kind of opening up the uh, the manual, and uh, my dad and I were looking at it, and I said, oh, you know, there's a big section on VOR navigation, and and VORs are still around. Um, and it stands for you know VHF uh, Omni Range, basically uh, mm-hmm. a, a cone-shaped uh, kind of uh, installation that's you know, fairly large, 
on the ground that uh, emits 360 degrees of, of signal an aircraft can basically based on their position um, almost like just tuning a radio can can basically you know track uh, what they call a radial and you can tell if you're going you know to the station or from the station based on kind of inputs and uh, uh, most most of the kind of commercial navigation that goes on is is either satellite in the form of GPS or oh, um, kind of based on uh, other things called IRS's inertial reference system where you have a, a ring laser gyro and the rotation of the earth allows them to kind of basically once you're oh, moving sorry. kind of identify a position and basically it all throws it in together. So the combination of the IRS, the GPS and um, and then actually picking out distances from these uh, VORs allows for this complicated algorithm for the aircraft to go, okay, I can ascertain my position within, you know, 0.3, you know, nautical miles of, and that's continuously tracked and GPS accuracy and all that. So um, that's how it's done. But these VORs are still a big part of that. And for uh, maybe older aircraft or um, aircraft that don't have, you know, very expensive or kind of dedicated avionics setups, that's kind of the backbone of navigation. So they've been around for a long time. Um, I want to say VORs started in the 50s, maybe uh, as a kind of a transition from the old lighted airways that uh, uh, you know, the male pilots used to use in the uh, kind of the 20s and 30s. Hmm. But um, it's it's not something that you can just sit down and figure out. There is There are some complexities to, all right, if I'm traveling away from the station, you know, and I have it kind of dialed in backwards, am I going to see to or from, and left or right, depending on, you know, which way I'm going. So there's a, it was a great explanation of exactly how to do this. So I remember reading this with my dad and saying, okay, let's, let's go out and try it. So, uh, you know, you come to load solo flight, and you've got a, a selection screen. You can select... Uh, you know, where you are, it's Kansas, Washington, um, Colorado, I think maybe Colorado. There you go. And then you could select, uh, you know, the, the, the phase of flight where there's landing or, you know, takeoff. And so, but you could also select weather. And if you selected IFR, you couldn't see anything outside. So, you know, the exercise was, okay, let's, let's navigate from uh, Wichita, Kansas to, you know, to another point just by, you know, reading the manual in these VORs and, We'll see what happens, and I'll just never forget it. You know, we did this. We we timed it out. We figured it would be 15, 20 minutes, <laughs> and uh, you know, descended down. And based on the, uh, I, I want to say, uh, hopefully, I'm not making this up, but maybe the Topeka, Kansas VOR, uh, there was an airport, and that was just this huge sense of, uh, um, you know, that we had accomplished something. Like, wow, we really did this. This really works. <laughs> you know, just uh, you know, tuning up this radial and you know, flying to the station without any reference to the outside and solo flights scenery. I mean, it was great. You had like a, a kind of a little cloud mountain type thing that, you know, didn't really change too much. And <laughs> the, the scenery itself was very similar to what you had in, in flight simulator. Yeah, but it's pretty even really, yeah. I mean, it, the, you could have an airport and you uh, kind of maybe saw a taxiway and, you know, the kind of large part of it was the runway, yeah. which was, uh, which was kind of neat. But, um, as far as buildings and everything, it was really very little, uh, three dimensional to it. So, uh, the strength really, other than being able to see the airplane, which is a great thing, but of course with the, uh, you know, with the with the IFR mode selected, stands for instrument flight rules, where you would mm-hmm. be flying in the clouds or under instrument rules anyway, it really didn't matter. And that was uh, kind of what I really strongly identified with. Oh, and okay. then recalled, you know, however many years later and sitting in aviation science or uh, <laughs> you know, loading up a, a simulator, you know, years and years later going, 
the Ori navigation, here it is, and first introduced the concept back in 1983 or 1984. I got this for my 8-bit. <laughs> That's right. And... Uh, and that and it sticks with me to this day. And it was uh, it awesome. was a really it was a really it really kind of that was kind of Microprose's thing. They, um, you know, they they kind of recognized the human element to uh, you know we can have a of course you can you build out a simulation it can be really great but if there's not that that kind of you know ability to um, kind of recognize that there was uh, maybe somebody different skill levels were uh, were out there where you know might have. Uh, you know, somebody like me, a, a kid, you know, trying to kind of figure this out anywhere from, you know, experienced pilots to kind of everyone in between. And that was something that really, really did well. And that's, I think, why one of the reasons their products, um, you know, really did quite well in, in the 8-bit environment and beyond. And uh, and also, I think uh, this is something that kind of near and dear to my is this notion of immersion. And that, um, even the, the manual or the way the product was designed to... Uh, kind of engage the user to say, uh, you know, he, here's an explanation or it really, it was clear that that was a, a big component of, of the product, even though it wasn't a, you know, solo flight wasn't learn how to fly, but just even in the name, you take your first solo flight, that's a very big uh, accomplishment. You know, it's something that generally pilots never forget and certainly myself included. Um, so to kind of, it, just from a, a design standpoint, it was, it was really obvious that um, they, they wanted to kind of differentiate differentiate themselves from Microsoft and something like which was kind of the gold standard as far as realism but yeah. it, it was also kind of a, a pretty um, Spartan lonely kind of existence where you've got all this but good luck figuring it out and yeah we've got a manual but the manual reads like uh, you know a master's thesis kind of thing <laughs> where um, I almost felt like it was more immersive being uh, having this kind of instructional component built in and certainly in the second edition uh, that was a huge part of it, or you actually got, um, you know, kind of text on the on the bottom of the screen, and uh, that would kind of advise you, you know, to climb or descend and everything yeah. else. And um, and uh, I, you know, I, I, I I'm actually, me. yeah, yeah, for <laughs> sure. But um, but uh, my goodness, what uh, what a, what a great product! A lot of time on solo flight, and the the mail part of it was uh, was really neat too. Where uh, you know you would um, you know. It would you do a mail run and you go from you know this city to that city, and maybe there was a random element to the weather and you know you had a, a really basic set of uh, kind of maps and uh, and ways to get in and out of the airport. So um, you know long before the days of, of Red Baron and uh, you know all these campaign based uh, kind of simulators and just you know and you know, kind of other games in general. This is kind of maybe a, a peek into what the future had in store. Oh, so. Yeah. Um, now I, I was told the C sixty four version of, of the second edition of Solo Flight actually had some speech involved where you'd get uh, yeah. kind of the instructor kind of voicing it and uh, in doing some research I read it was kind of scrapped from the Atari version because of the uh, I guess they could have done it but they would have had to segregate and only deploy it like the XE so they wouldn't have been able to do it in forty eight K so oh. they said it was more important to maintain. Uh, backwards compatibility between the 400, you know, not, maybe not the 400, but, but certainly the 800. And they looked at their user base and said, "All right, well, we're not ready to, um, you know, to go develop and just target uh, the XL or the XE when maybe they had a sense that 16-bit uh, stuff was coming out." I don't believe this saw an ST version, but um, the Solo Flight Second Edition Atari 8-bit version, I guess, is a just a, maybe a little bit stripped down, but it is just for the instructor kind of stuff on the bottom. 
it is it is worth checking out. I think the instrument panel is a little bit redone too. So that's yeah. Um, I, it seemed like the certainly the the ninety percent of the game is is about the same, but it is kind of more refined. And when I loaded up, it was great. It gives you like you know every I don't know ten seconds. It says you know here's your altitude, here's your airspeed, here's your heading, um, in in a very clear kind of text. You know you know, 1800 feet, you know, 95 knots and so on. And so, you know, 352 degrees or whatever. So, um, for that reason alone, I think it's, uh, even more so, even more, um, kind of aimed at, uh, making it a little bit easier for somebody to just pick up and, and fly it. But, uh, yeah, I, man, many, many hours playing solo flight <laughs> and, uh, I definitely had a lasting impression to where, uh, you know, every time I tune up a VR, I just did it uh, last night as a kind of a backup for something. I went, gosh, you know, I still have that, That's you know, that, 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 in that instant of thinking this was, you know, the first time I did this was on a, you know, Atari 800 as a, as a, on the, with the Atari joystick and you know, the CX-40, you know, going, oh, you know, as a six-year-old or whatever. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I, but, I, uh, uh, I never really got into the VR aspects and I, sort of the, the higher level stuff of the flight simulators kind of escaped my my brain when I was flying these things. So I would just try to, you know, fly around and oh, I sure. used it hard for me to like land up, line up with a runway. I, I still remember just, I'd be off by a little bit and I'd say, Oh heck with it. I'm just going to land on the, on the one tire on the grass and one tire on the runway, which <laughs> wouldn't really work. Oh gosh. No, that's I mean, there's <laughs> certainly been uh, some folks who landed on uh, taxiways by mistake. Uh, that's, uh, that's happened uh, a couple of times, but uh, it honestly, without, without uh, a good rudder control, that is still, I mean, if, if you load up a, a simulator, you have maybe a, a game pad or something, that is tough. Um, you know, a lot of the modern aircraft have what's called a yaw damper, where it'll make a coordinated turn for you without a rudder. Oh, but really? okay. without the ability to input yaw, especially in a small plane, it's darn, I mean, that that was one of the great challenges. We could have everything set, but, mm-hmm. you know, whether there's wind or whatever, you come up and you're kind of approaching the runway sideways, and they're just not a real good way to model that so you're not alone there that was uh, <laughs> that was very very tough uh you had to get i mean you basically had to get everything perfect uh, in order to do that so and with a something with a low frame or a lower frame it was always tough where you'd make an input and you wouldn't see it um you know and then by that time you know to you know, you're 500 600 feet off and going oh, runways over there yeah. back. so yeah definitely challenging landings are always tough Kind of leads us into the next thing on the list here is a, and I've never played this one, the 747 landing simulator, and I guess that's the one we neither of us really were able to to get going. It's a shame. Uh, I think this, this is a, a very detailed product, and uh, was a one of the uh, many that uh, distributed through the three APX the Atari Program Exchange, and uh, I'm hoping we can revisit this one uh, maybe in the next segment of this because I, I really don't want to uh, give this one short shrift. But um, yeah, it's an early game too, 1981. 1981. So absolutely, um, you know the you know Day Atari and all that was uh, still a ways off, and um, it, it, it it the fact that it just tackles landing is uh, is a way I think to kind of you know with given maybe 16k or or you know 48k limitations where it's all right. I don't need to worry about you know take off or any of the procedures there. If I just kind of capitalize it to you know, I want to land this airplane it allows for, you know, kind of more realism in, in that standpoint. And the, the manual is, uh, is, is quite lengthy and, uh, it's on archive.org. It's, it's, it's worth, you know, checking out, but I just, uh, I just was, I, I encountered this one growing up. Um, 
you know, we actually did have a lot of uh, APX software, so this this might have been one that uh, that we purchased or the university purchased. But I kind of feel like if we had, I would have definitely played it since it, you know, went right to my interest. So I want to say this might have been one that a friend had, or mm. you know, I do remember seeing the original discs and, and loading it up. But unfortunately, beyond that, um, really, yeah, I never saw this. Was, yeah. it was pretty limited. So. Um, uh, we're going to have to maybe come back to that one, but uh, you know, be curious if uh, if anybody did, um, you know, did use it. And certainly, being in '81, uh, and that was, you know, there was not a whole lot out there. Yeah, it was very early. Yeah, so, um, I kind of feel like this. Maybe this was one of uh, APX's, um, you know, first kind of offerings that didn't take the uh, kind of business application sense. So. Um, so that'd be, I hopefully can, like I said, revisit this one when we talk about the uh, military ones and, and give it a more proper uh, treatment. But uh, yeah, unfortunately, I, I didn't, uh, didn't have, didn't have uh, too much to say about this one. Well, we'll get back to it. Yes. yes. Also, I guess related landing is this program called Dead Stick Landing, which I also never, okay. s- never saw before. <laughs> did you, right. did well, you check I- this one out? Yeah, I, w- I won't talk too long too long about this one, but uh, I do remember this one. Uh, was it part of the uh, magazine, Softside? Yeah, so I, I know uh, Softside is uh, is not always the greatest as far as content, but uh, I and I didn't subscribe to Softside. We we didn't get. Uh, I, I I remember whether it was library or maybe occasionally, but having a, a computer magazine was, was kind of a treat at home and it was not uh, an every month thing. And I kind of think why it was, it was really kind of silly. I should have just asked for an antic or analog subscription um, at Christmas time. I'm sure folks would have probably said, Oh yeah, sure. Great. You know, you're reading, go for it. But it, it just kind of didn't even really know to ask. So uh, whether it was friends or, you know, somewhere, maybe you know, going to a bookstore, reading it, and then uh, sheepishly putting it back and leaving or something like that. Um, I did occasionally get, you know, was able to read, but um, certainly not as often as I wanted. But uh, certainly in typing in programs, I did I did that quite a bit. And then, you know, got them on BBSs and whatnot. Uh, but I'm pretty sure Deadstick was a download from a BBS, and I had mm-hmm. no idea it came from a magazine. I just thought it was someone's creation. Huh. And uh, but uh, the the premise of it is uh, you've got uh, you know, you, you're bringing in a craft, and of course the shuttle is technically a, a Deadstick landing. And right. I actually don't recall this. This might be. I actually think it is. I, I think the you get like a, a kind of a page of explanation of text, and it says you know you're to land the uh, the space shuttle and hear that, and you've got um, you've got two controllers, Fido, F I D O, and Guido. Which actually, if you read it, it looks like Guido, but I think it's supposed to be Fido <laughs> and Guido. And uh, they're basically telling you turn left, turn right, you know, speed up, slow down. So uh, you've got basically like approach control in your ear. You know, telling you what to do, and it's it's a pretty rudimentary. It's a basic program uh, with the kind of a custom character set, and um, really, I remember as a kid just playing it just to to bug the two controllers and to do the opposite of what they told you. <laughs> you know, see how they uh, they start to go turn left, turn left, and yeah, this sort of thing. So, <clears throat> and it's got some, you know, some a little bit of sound going. So for. Um, just being done in basic and very, very uh, rudimentary representation controls. I want to say the uh, attitude toward, towards the horizon is maybe the uh, the dash character, and you know, definitely stays in the mostly text mode with uh, you know, so maybe you know, graphics zero, graphics one, something like that. It's actually done pretty well, I have to say. 
um, it, it's it's a pretty you know kind of interesting program. It is even if, if once you decide to actually follow the commands of the two controllers, <laughs> it is still pretty tough to bring it in and land. But uh, this was one that I, I did definitely get some uh, some gameplay growing up, and I just kind of happenstance, just kind of lucky that uh, it came up in the list that you sent me in the in the first place. I was actually surprised to see it on. I said, "Oh, that's great! I, I don't know that I would have remembered that." But oh, yeah. this one, this one that got in that kind of litany of, of basic programs that I loaded up and played. This one did get played, uh, you know, a little bit, uh, or I should say, every so often. But uh, otherwise, it's uh, you know, it's it, it's not. Uh, it's it's not a commercial product or or anything that uh, you'd say hold it up and say look at the great graphics but <laughs> in kind of an exercise and you know can i maybe do a simulation with only characters and uh and you know kind of integrate some complexity especially knowing how slow basic is i'm actually quite impressed yeah. at just the even the the coding of it i mean and looking at the list of it uh you know which is always interesting to do it was it was well done uh, it's uh so yeah so maybe more from a an appreciation standpoint to think that not only did somebody think of this, but they were able to build in these various elements to where, um, you know, it, it, it accomplishes its goal. You bring in, you know, bring the shuttle in for a, a dead sick landing and, and kind of go from there. So yeah, that was uh, definitely an interesting one, but uh, uh, definitely not maybe in the category of our commercial ones that we talked about, but it's worth checking out. I mean, it's available. It's an easy download, loaded up and you know, it's kind of a just a, even maybe just to kind of see the two controllers and what they say it's kind of <laughs> so, yeah that's a good one yeah yeah i never never played this never heard of it back then and yeah only just i the way i got my list of stuff was just to look for simulation in mm-hmm. atari mania and this one came up and so uh yeah it's interesting album oh. so 82 soft side so i'm not going to get to that for another eight seven or eight issues probably or seven or eight episodes but yeah. i'll definitely have to look at the code when i get there yeah it's 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 pretty good i want to say it's uh like a yellow orange uh, background and like i said you'll recognize uh you know some of the characters but i when it when it loads up it, it says you know loading uh, custom character sets so uh there was you know that wasn't that difficult to do and in no, fact yeah. one of my all-time favorite books on the subject of Atari program, the Dr. Wacko books. Um, let's see, so there was Dr. Wacko's like something, something or other, arcade game programming, there was another one. Oh, one I don't of those. those two books. Oh, those are great. Yeah, they're on, I, I want to say that either they're on uh, Kevin's site or, you know, they're they're maybe archived.org, but yeah, it's such a goofy name, but the, yeah, <laughs> Dr. Wacko, we actually had the, it's kind of a, was a, a soft cover, not hardcover, but kind of in between trade paperback, I guess. Uh, we had yeah. those growing up. And uh, there's actually, he spends quite a bit of time saying, here's a great way to, if you want to do a, a really neat game with a lot of animation, consider, um, you know, staying in text or, you know, using characters, but you can load your own or, you know, kind of create. So actually, um, you know, this, it, it, this program does that pretty well. And uh, because I had had a little bit of exposure to that kind of method, the code was very, very interesting to see how it oh, okay. So yeah. even maybe absent any type of actual dead stick shuttle landing experience for just the um, the fact that here was someone who was able to successfully do that in basic, given its constraints, <laughs> is maybe worth looking at it for that reason as well. And honestly, I, I like I said, I had no idea this came from SoftSide, but uh, based on the kind of programs that you've covered in soft side going up to here this is definitely a not uh, kind of a cut above soft sides yeah it seems like it 
but uh yeah so we'll pick up with kennedy approach here yes yes indeed now i I, i'd love to know is this one that you encountered or played uh growing up or or kind of in the later on kennedy approach nope i didn't i didn't see it at all i don't know if it it looks like it's an 85 game Mm -hmm. uh i was still i think by 85 i was kind of I'd fallen into like Ultima. I was playing a lot of Ultima, okay. Ultima three and stuff. Nice. So I didn't play a lot of flight simulator stuff, apart from some of the military stuff, which we'll talk about. Sure. In part two of this, but no, I didn't see this at all. Well, one of the many great things about Micropose was, uh, and talk about uh, good marketing, even from kind of the early days. Uh, you know, so of course, load times, no matter what, cassette, disc, they were just they were brutal. So um, one of the I, I always think about this. You know, if you had something to look at other than just the cursor absent anything in the blue screen, yeah. it, it made it kind of easier to take. You know, and you know, uh, unfortunately, especially given the context of what happened to Atari, uh, if games were cracked, you know, you might have a custom loading screen, and that persisted through on. I mean, you know, maybe even to this day, who knows? Yeah. But uh, so maybe you have something, or you have like someone who converted it from the fifty two hundred, or you'd have maybe yeah. And, Sometimes the color cycling would kind of, uh, with the loading sound of the sectors, would uh, kind of give you a, a pattern, which was kind of neat. But Micropros did it where they would advertise their other products. And this, they know they've got you, right? You, you're probably yeah. not going to go get a sandwich because it's not, well, maybe the cassette you would. But if you're loading it on disc, it's not going to be crazy long. But you know, 30 seconds, 60 seconds of uh, kind of boot time. And here you can stare at, you know, go buy Hellcat Ace, go buy, you know, yeah. silent service. Or It was just so brilliant. And a lot of times they would switch. You'd get one screen for about 15 seconds, another one. And um, really kind of came to appreciate how brilliant that was. But uh, that is really the only way I found out about Kennedy Approach was Solo Flight or maybe Flow to the Jungle or one of the, one of the non-kind of simulator products where that were also done by Micropros and the Kennedy approach what is that so um you know then this was uh, so you said 85 kind of later where um you know maybe you could argue that Atari games as far as complexity were kind of hitting their stride mm-hmm. but then kind of rug pulled off from under when the ST came out and the large kind of move to 16-bit stuff and the Super Nintendo and all these other factors that kind of um you know maybe you know, and piracy and everything else really kind of going strong. But I like to look at games from this period and uh, think that, um, you know, the developer documentation had been out for a couple of years and people had really come up with innovative ways to right. do things that maybe uh, Chris Crawford and all the uh, kind of core Atari group that pushed for this hadn't even thought of. Right, uh, yeah. or maybe it was, uh, you know, some sort of a register call or uh, some way to, uh, you know, bank switching or something uh, maybe to do with TV signal that, that maybe no one had contemplated and allowed for a speed increase or something like that. So um, I kind of feel that way in Kennedy Approach. This is um, it, it's a, a very kind of simple interface, but the, the premise is um, air traffic control um, kind of insulations around the country uh, are typically identified by their function approach and departure. And it's typically the same building. You'll have your control tower and so let's take uh, your JFK or Kennedy example. So you've got your control tower that will have uh, all the functions associated with, uh, uh, you know, ground control and then um, what they call local or, or tower. And, you know, those guys will, you know, anywhere from 5 to maybe 15 or 20 miles. And then there's a handoff that goes on. So then your flight 
transfers to um, what they call the uh, approach and departure facility. That's typically off-site. In New York, I just happen to know it's in uh, Long Island. And different building where, um, you know, they all they do is they handle the kind of from the 20 to 50 or 60 mile range. And this is typically the busiest and, uh, you know, kind of, I don't want to say craziest, but it, it's the most intense kind of, you know, position they have. And much more so the approach where you get aircraft coming in to land uh, departures, not so much because it's generally, you know, climb up and you get about 10,000 or 15,000. You get shipped off into the the next layer, which is called the end route part of it or, or centers, but oh, right. um, typically not uh, nearly as much uh, kind of compression or, or kind of issues with that because, you know, everyone's, you know, climbing up and you're eventually getting your cruise altitude. And it's a, it's a fairly, um, I don't want to take anything away from it, but where you've got you know airplanes coming in all different speeds and different configurations, yeah, heavy so aircraft, light aircraft, line them up and all that. And they yeah, gotta get it, the know, order yeah. everything. Everyone's yeah. using the, the same set of runways based on winds or anything like that. So uh, that's typically where you see the uh, the most high stress. And there's a uh, a movie of uh, somewhat uh, arguable uh, cinematic quality, but for the ATC stuff, it's worth it. Called Pushing Tin, which came out in the uh, I remember that. So it was fairly yeah. accurate in the way they just depicted uh, the, that. The, the air traffic control stuff was spot on. They actually, really? um, the main character played by John Cusack is actually mm-hmm. modeled after a, uh, a, a New York uh, air traffic controller. So, um, like I said, it it's, has the dubious suspension of being the movie where Billy Bob Thornton met Angelina Julie and so that whole thing. <laughs> so they're in it, John Cusack's in it, and actually Kate Blanchett's in it. So there's actually some, some, some pretty good actors, but the, uh, you know, just just the ATC, they do a neat thing where they kind of uh, do a, a kind of a 3D snap to, um, you know, ATC. They take the scope and make it kind of three-dimensional. So if you really just watch it for that, there's probably probably a YouTube clip that has just oh, the, yeah. you know, the exchanges between pilot and controller in there. Um, it's great. But I, I wish I could say good things about the rest <laughs> of the movie. I certainly went to see it in the theater and enjoyed it. But uh, upon subsequent viewings, it's really probably not the best. But 20 minutes of ATC stuff and an hour and a half of... <laughs> kind of bad movie but yeah anyway i think the but, atc scene that i remember is from close encounters but that was oh, back in the sure. 70s yeah there you go yeah that's 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 right it's probably much different Definitely. back then uh oh there's uh well we're kind of a little bit of a chant in here there's uh uh die hard 2 where they uh they go and they, they oh, corrupt the yeah. uh the instrument landing system and they take it you know 200 feet into the ground uh not quite uh really uh too based in realism is the, the thought is you have to see the runway to land on it. You wouldn't just drive it into the ground, but kind of, uh, with some of the way they dealt with it, they, they did get a couple things right. And, um, kind of a, an interesting premise of controller plays a pretty big part in the movie there. So this has been kind of tackled in, in various forms, but, yeah. uh, so I guess it makes sense that they would want to, uh, you know, the thought of, Hey, we should make a game about this. This is a very high stress, uh, kind of job. Not a lot of people can do it. Um, sure. yeah, maybe this would be, uh, it may be, kind of have the perfect uh, kind of makings for a simulation or a video game. And if, if you look at it, it's so it loads up, and you just get a very, very basic grid, and it's got a couple of cities. You've got, um, you know, you're in typical micropose form, you're, you're given a choice. You know, do you want to start in Atlanta or DFW, and are you a trainee or this or that? So that kind of um, menu-based kind of entry into the game pretty common, certainly in microprose games of, of this era on the Atari, for sure. So you do that, you make your decision, skill level, et cetera, et cetera, and then um, you're basically given a map, and you have, uh, I want to see, it's London, Atlanta, 
some points south of Boston, and then uh, a couple of so kind of uh, you know north, south, east, and west are represented. And all of a sudden, an airplane will just appear, and it'll be this little kind of plane. It's all you know two D, and uh, you kind of move the uh, in kind of the same way that uh, kind of the same movement mechanic or selection mechanic that Eastern Front had. You kind of go you know find the airplane moving and click it, and um, then through a, a kind of a series of entries, you can identify, uh, you know, what the flight number is and kind of tell them what to do. And that kind of by itself would be neat in the same way that flight control was such a huge hit for iOS is one of the first kind of games that everybody had on iOS and Android where, you know, you you kind of put airplanes and and move them into position, line them up. This is really about the same thing, but it does kind of integrate a few more realistic, realistic aspects to where, um, you can only really kind of affect heading and altitude, but you have to kind of be mindful of, even though it's an unrealistic representation of, all right, clearly I'm not going to be able, a guy coming from London isn't going to be doing it at 2,000 feet. But in the standpoint that you keep traffic separated, you have to kind of realize, all right, I've got to keep this guy 3,000, this guy 2,000. And in, in the real sense of approach control, that is very true. I mean, you, you know, you do have, you know, traffic all lined up for the runway and coming from different directions. You have to really watch it and, uh, you know, big time respect for air traffic controllers who can look at a 2D scope, radar scope, and be able to position that in three dimensions and just do that and just know, you know, based on a pretty Spartan kind of green screen display that, uh, you know, with maybe limited update capabilities and a very, um, you know, with not a lot of data available, can do this, and this is it's just what they do. So, based on your input, it, 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 one of the most interesting parts of this game is even on the Atari 8-bit, you get, you get sound. And you get, not only do you get sound, but you get voice based on what you say. And it's, it's, I, it's worth checking out just for that reason. So, um, in the Atari 8-bit version, it's, everything is identified as United. So, it might, you might see a you know, plane pop up coming from you know, the south or from London, might be United 202, and you say, you know, through your commands, you kind of, you know, click and select, and you can say, All right, I want this guy to go west, and I want it to be at 3,000 feet. So, based on your input, you, you know, you enter or activate it, and you actually hear it read out, you know, United 202, uh, you know, turn left to heading 270, descend to 2,000 feet. Now, the response that the guy gives is always the same. It's always just, Roger. United 701, turn left to two. But the fact that, you know, all these commands were, you know, kind of programmed in and maybe it's a one bit sound. I mean, it's 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 not great, but certainly growing up, it was mind blowing. And even loading it back today, it's still pretty darn good. So this one holds up. And if you crank the difficulty up, there are a lot of targets on the screen and it, it, it chugs a little bit. But. You know, just from that standpoint, it, it is you can get a, a nice pattern going, and on the other hand, things can go awry pretty quickly. So, <laughs> uh, Kennedy approach a really, really, really neat one. Uh, Andy Hollis was the designer at Microprose. Um, I, I'm drawing a little bit of a blank. I, we'll we'll revisit his name. I think more with military stuff. I want to say he went on to do some pretty amazing things, uh, kind of later on in uh, in video game stuff and other platforms, but. Uh, just a, a really, really neat title. And this was also one that got a, a reboot for the Atari ST and uh, kind of that 
kind of version of uh, systems and it's 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 great it's you know the it's a kind of you know in 16 bit or 16 colors but the core of the game is the same the voice is definitely better the, it moves a little food but they didn't really change too much they just just really kind of an update to you know to kind of bring it into a, a higher resolution but the the core gameplay is very much the same so if you play kennedy approach on the atari 8-bit um, you're really getting uh, the similar or you know kind of same core experience you would get even on a, a more modern machine. So, just for the speech alone, it's worth it. But it's really um, it, it's neat to uh, to kind of play and and uh, try to get a few airplanes going and you know realize oh shuck these guys going to hit each other or got to climb descend this guy climb this guy. It's it's kind of neat. So yeah, it's definitely a, a fun one. And uh, there would be products that would come out later that I'm sure owed so much of this. There's one actually. Uh, a Bruce Artwork one called Tower, which uh, was kind of an odd program, but it, it, it took kind of this same framework and expanded it out to where um, you really could get, uh, it kind of, it used the same kind of engine as Flight Simulator, but it was a standalone product. And you could actually look at a very real looking radar display and work like ground control or tower uh-huh. or approach departure. It was actually uh, kind of neat. And all, all that has pretty much been integrated into the modern flight simulator. It's like you load up the latest version of flight simulator or FSX on Steam or something like that, and you're going to have ATC elements built in. But Kennedy Approach was uh, uh, was a, kind of a non-flight simulator simulator, but uh, really did it pretty well. I'm sure inspired a few air traffic controllers out there. Um, <laughs> you know, I thought if I... Uh, couldn't get my medical or didn't have the uh, chops to fly or whatever I'd want to do ATC. So that was uh, definitely a good one. But uh, yeah, that one is, is, uh, is worth checking out. Uh, just like I said, if nothing else, the technological marvel of, of having uh, speech that wasn't just one line or, or that actually kind of changed based on your input is really, I don't know how they managed to fit all that in. It's got to be a, a pretty amazing story. And as far as algorithm or storage or um, all that is pretty, pretty incredible. Yeah, I'll have to try it. All right. Well, the uh, the next one is also um, maybe a little bit of an outlier as far as the genre goes, but worth talking about really for kind of the end part. So did you do you ever play Space Shuttle Journey into Space on the 800 or maybe the 2600? Yeah, I had the 2600 cartridge, and then um, I also had a, well, of course, pirated version again on the Ataris on the 800s. Yeah, I remember this one, and I I tried to play it Again, and I, the controls are much harder than I remembered. I uh, I kept I could never follow the the glide path in on the way down, so I'd end up come screaming down way too fast. <laughs> yeah, this this one is uh, is really neat. It's um, it, and I, I I didn't play the twenty six hundred version. I had it on the eight hundred, but this was Activision, and uh, I don't recall the year. I want to say, well, if it was on the twenty six hundred, had to be. Um, Looks like it was '83, according to Atari Mania. Okay, okay, good deal. And I would guess there are some uh, some differences, maybe in display or resolution in the 800 version. Um, but th- this is really a a great kind of early space simulator from beginning to end, as far as simulating the whole kind of launch and you know orbit and dock with the satellite and everything else. But the the part that I really want to talk about that maybe makes it legitimate to speak of in the flight simulator realm <laughs> is that last part. And, you know, I, I kind of think even the Challenger disaster was 85, but there was a really a whole lot of interest in NASA and the, the shuttle program, you know, in the early 80s. And, uh, you know, growing up, I certainly remember that there were 
um, you know, think of maybe 83, 84, even despite, you know, the economy being down, there were a good number of shuttle launches to where they were fairly common. And, uh, you know, that certainly resumed several years after the Challenger disaster to where the, the shuttles had a, a fairly um, kind of frequent launch schedule. But uh, in those days before that accident happened, uh, I'm sorry, Challenger was 86, January 86? Yeah, yeah. I think so. So it wasn't 85. So anyway, um, so I guess this was kind of in the uh, in the public mindset to where there were um, dead stick landing was, you know, kind of, oh, let's land the shuttle. And this, this notion that um, basically you have a really, really heavy, expensive glider that, uh, you know, has powered itself into orbit, but is kind of reliant on, you know, combination of good piloting, you know, computers, weather, and everything else to kind of re-enter the atmosphere and, and land is is something that you can certainly see why it would be interesting to folks, but it's kind of funny that there were several different products that kind of tried to model this, and uh, and this is, I think, probably the one that does the best for the for the Atari. Uh, so the uh, so the the kind of the premise of the of the actual game is you do a based on the difficulty level, you do a full blown shuttle mission where you launch, you know, deploy a satellite or dock with a satellite. And then you return and re-enter, and uh, you know the re-entry kind of part of it is interesting too, where you know, they they simulate uh, uh, you know the the kind of height of your you know thermal temperature going up, and uh, you know kind of not being able to really see your your you get just a, a hint of you know your and uh, and all that. But the, probably the best part of it is um, if you're able to kind of keep things on schedule, you're supposed to kind of kind of roll out and do a. A landing at uh, at I believe it's Edwards Air Force Base. Yes, it's kind of the the desert, and this is you know anywhere from kind of moderately difficult to really really tough with the uh, difficulty cranked up. But uh, you mentioned you kind of have to try your best to to stay you know to position yourself coming through you know two hundred thousand one hundred fifty thousand feet. And the really neat thing is you get a heads up display just like they do in the in the shuttle of. To where you've got your kind of um, airspeed and attitude and everything kind of projected on the screen, and to see the the speed and the altitude, it was one hundred fifty thousand feet, and then the speed is just really, really just cranking. Is yeah. in a, it represented in like this huge Mach number down to this you know ridiculously high number of uh, indicated airspeed is is kind of cool just in and of itself. But the uh, really about the last thirty seconds, so when. Um, and you're trying to position the shuttle, and you can see the runway out there. It's just with with all the instrumentation, and it's kind of in an L shape, and you have a little kind of a window, or almost like a, a square kind of um, kind of viewing port to to see out. It's just all very very well done. It's it's fluid. Um, you know the uh, it, I think helped by the fact that the you know they have to animate only a couple of lines where you get to see the. Uh, the runway approaching and uh it just it looks really good and it's it's very satisfying to actually accomplish you get a nice uh, sound of the landing gear touching down and and you know kind of uh, you get like almost like hydraulic noises of kind of spoilers coming up and <laughs> and all that it's just it's really really neat um i will admit to probably doing it on easy uh many many times just to be able to land the shuttle and once you crank it up it is really pretty tough um oh yeah i never stuff. played anything other than easy this was just yeah, too tough but, for me uh, 
but it, it really is um, it's neat and it, it will kind of hold your hand if you have it set on an easier novice it will uh, kind of take some of the guidance functions on like the launch it'll kind of do it for you if you get too far afield it'll kind of override you and you know kind of bring you back um, the sound of the landing you're coming down is is really great. Uh, it, it's it's amazing. It, the the sound that they use in the simulator here is uh, not too far off from that. So even think, uh, you know, an eight bit sound <laughs> way back. Really? It's, uh, it's kind of hasn't changed all that much, and you know, in kind of the simulator world. But um, it's just you know typical Activision, very well done. Um, yeah, you know, graphics are very polished. Yeah, and, uh, very very polished. You need no sense of a, a kind of frame rate slowdown, and uh, and, you know, they, they knew it. Obviously, updating the entire screen is pretty tough. You just have a couple of instruments to update, and then you can still give that really sense of motion and the runway blazing by, and, oh, my God, I'm too high or I'm too fast, or whatever it is kind of going. It's uh, it's really neat. So this this one I looked at as almost just kind of a landing simulator and, and kind of in the realm of flight simulating, but um, that you, you couldn't add thrust. I mean, that was it. It was such a such kind of a neat thing to where, it's all based on you know pre-positioning yourself and you know if you how closely you're able to follow guidance and set yourself up, and that's all you got. You know if you run at airspeed or you know, you're too high, I mean that you're very limited in what you could do. Um, I know that the shuttle pilots when they would fly it, they would train in a, a really um, kind of hybrid model of um, one of the business jets, maybe a Learjet or something like that, that basically had this you know same avionics package wired in where they would just basically, you know, they would say, make us as heavy as we can yeah. and try to simulate and basically just, you know, pull the throttles and, and come down. And it was, uh, you know, definitely not easy to do. That's, you know, couldn't not, not just anybody could sign up and be an astronaut. And one of the reasons was not only was the reentry procedure difficult, but this landing was, was tough. And there, there were a couple things they could do. Like if they realized they were really off or if the wind shifted, they could do kind of like an overhead maneuver and, you know, fly, go screaming by, you know, put it into a kind of a steep bank and come back. I don't really think that happened too often because this had to be one of those things where, all right, we're going to go to Edwards, we're going to go to, you know, here or there based on conditions and these super, super long runways and everything else. But Yeah, and I know uh, they, were, yeah. they intended to land in, at Canaveral much more often than they did. And, and, yes, uh, and it, it, it seemed like it kind of, they, they did end up. Now, it's crazy, though. There, there's a long list, kind of shuttle history, of uh, places that they that they could land yeah. and uh, white sands, New Mexico was in there or maybe Roswell. One of the, well, Roswell has a huge long right. runway, but um, I think Bergstrom and Austin used to, was one of the yeah, backups as well. That's right. And then even if you went even further down the list, like the interstate in Florida, I four between, Orlando, <laughs> that was like 30 was there a straight enough list. section so, that they could do that. <laughs> uh, apparently there is, but uh, you know, it, it got into kind of lunatic where, you know, you are, we're not going to, probably land the shuttle in the interstate but yeah. all these sites it seemed like they never ever got past you know one or two but uh, i'm sure maybe they did it's probably an interesting uh, you know thing for people who are real shuttle aficionados but you know it seems like it was edwards or you know canaveral and to be fair i mean that was the the longest straightest you know 0.000 percent of kind of runway grade or pitch i mean it was just uh massive for that reason but uh really kind of a neat thing so you you you, you load up you know, space shuttle journey into space, you really do feel like uh, maybe I got a little sense of uh, of kind of the different mission parameters and just a really a, a really immersive game. One of my uh, one of my favorites, even though I certainly skewed more towards uh, you know kind of pure flight simulators. This was definitely one that I played a lot, and every once in a while I'd say, "Oh, let's try it on you know medium or whatever," and it was just impossible to dock. <laughs> I like, could never I could never quite figure out the the trick and. Uh, 
boy. And then it would just, it would just say, all right, well, you failed and, and send you back. It wasn't like it just quit the program there, but you went all the way back and reentered knowing ah, I botched it again kind of thing. So <laughs> not maybe a little unforgiving in that point, but certainly easy to enjoy as a, you know, as a younger kid and, and kind of going forward. So definitely a lot of fun memories of that one. Yeah. It still really holds up today. I think I totally agree. Yeah. I guess Steven, if you just want to kind of punt the rest and just do the, uh, you know, get it to where, you know, try to, to, to try a landing, that's, that's worth it. But really the, um, the, the whole part, the whole kind of start to finish is, is pretty neat too. So. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Well, part two, we'll come back and talk about military stuff and, uh, awesome. And pick up those other two that we yes, skipped yes, over, but, uh, Perfect. yeah, great. Well, thanks a lot, Chris. Thank you. And, uh, yeah, we'll come back for part two. <laughs> All right. Thanks to Chris for recording with me. As we close out here, here's some uh, pokey music from Mikhail Spilovsky called Night Flight. And I found this basically because it had flight in the title. You're really going to make me pronounce the, or try to pronounce the Polish on you. All right. Tadetsuyatsa Startsia, which for all I know might mean you're trying to run away from something at night instead of, you know, actually relating to flying or something. But also he's talking about flying some airplane at night. Next episode, we'll do part two of the flight simulators where we'll talk about the military flight sims. And these are the ones I had more time with. I remember particularly F-15 Strike Eagle. My dad and I would play that, we'd take turns and try to do the missions, you know, go into the enemy territory, make it home. I just remember having a lot of fun with him doing that. Got a couple more games in that list that I've never played before, so I'm looking forward to trying those out before next time. And next episode, I'll also have a summary of the Atari Party because I'm hitting the Atari party here in a couple days, and really looking forward to that. So I've got to I'll bring along a little recorder, maybe I'll get some interviews if I can get that working. But certainly i get an overview and uh, sort of a summary of the Atari party. Looking forward to hearing about VCF Southeast, which is also going on this same weekend. I think all the Antic guys, plus Wade from Inverse Tasky are going to be there. So yeah, I guess that's it, that's it for episode 12. I always like hearing feedback, so you can send me an email at feedback at playermissile.com. Or I'm on Twitter, at Atari8BitGames. I'm also a member of the Throwback Network, so head over to throwbacknetwork.net for all your retro podcasting needs. If you haven't already listened to Floppy Days episode 36 about the Atari 400-800, Randy got all the Atari podcaster guys together, and we all chatted about Atari stuff. So it's a lot of fun, so go check that one out. I'll include a link to that in the show notes. So until next time, fire up Flight Simulator 2 and take off and land from MIGS Field. And I will see you next episode.